is brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with the military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. Be sure to enter the code UNITY at checkout to help support the podcast. And in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become part of their unarmed forces. You have a sex voice, Nikki. <laughs> like, you don't think that I can pick you up, but I'm still picking you up. So here's the thing. Um, Nick Betts, I'm really curious about your background because um, I got to know you in a very strange way. And I don't know that a lot of people know you the way that I know you. And, and we'll get into that. But I also don't, I don't personally know your full background. And I'm really curious about it. And I know it may be repetitive for most, but when you're talking to someone like me who comes from a Canadian side or comes from the British side or comes from the side that's not fully American. I'm really learning that there is nuances to the United States military that I didn't fully grasp or understand. And um, I find it really fascinating to know that you were a sniper. And in Canada, that's, I didn't know any snipers. I don't know very many sharpshooters. I know a handful that were in the British military. And they're just not the same as you guys. And so I want you to basic do your best version of walking me through kind of how you got to be who you are. Please. So I competed in golf all four years of high school and my senior year, I was pretty well set to uh, go to Arizona state on a scholarship. And so state finals, I ended up getting caught smoking a cigarette Apparently, because it's a school function, there is a 0% tobacco tolerance policy. So this gentleman that saw me was a father for one of the opposing players. And his kid just got smoked. So he ended up throwing me under the bus to the officials and judges. And so I ended up getting disqualified. Uh, scores withdrawn, kicked off the golf team, and scholarship was withdrawn. And so my entire plan going up to that point was to go to Arizona State for photojournalism. I wanted, I was into photography at the time. Uh, that was my plan. And then uh, with hopes and aspirations going to National Geographic. So when all that got pissed away over a camel, I ended up having to rethink a lot of things. And so I moved out and was just debaucherous as fuck, partying at U of A frat houses uh, with a buddy of mine. Uh, had an apartment in Tucson, Arizona. And then I ended up partying so hard, I ended up getting laid off. So I'm trying to find work. I'm writing bad checks. Um, and I guess a recruiter called my mom, and my mom threw Hold the recruiter up. over to me. Wait. What? How did a recruiter know your mom? I don't know. I think it was probably like a like a school list that he was going through and like calling like random cell phones trying to like recruit kids. Okay, hold on. This is really weird because I've had this conversation with several people and they've said to me, we don't have recruiters come to high schools. We don't have recruiters. There's no recruiter showing up at the high schools like they do in the movies. That's not a thing. And then I talked about that on a recent podcast and I got so many DMs where people are like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. Like there was dudes showing up in my high school, like signing people up in the parking lot to become Marines. Like that's a real thing for you guys. But when you say like the recruiter called my mom, like in my lifetime in Canada, I can never picture a fucking recruiter being like, what's up, Kathy? Your daughter needs to join the army. <laughs> like, at what, what point would she get your contact information? 
I I think it was from some like high school database, and my mom got the phone call, and she's like, "Well, I know my kid's a fucking piece of shit. Like maybe this could work <laughs> out for him." So she she gave him my number, and next thing I get a call from some staff sergeant, and I was not fucking patriotic. I I mean I wasn't unpatriotic, but I didn't give a fuck about the military. Like I was skating and and my whole life, I was just a fucking debaucherous piece of shit. Um, I mean your words, man. <laughs> your words, right? <laughs> So he's like, hey, you know, I'm trying to recruit you for the army and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I got real Mexican real like, quick. Hey, in the mama's way. <laughs> so I ended up finally agreeing to having a lunch date with my fucking recruiter at Hooters because I was hungry. A for lunch for date at Hooters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how they that's how they wine and dine an 18 year old, oh especially God. in 2005. So I go and I meet with the recruiter to come to find out there is an MOS that is combat camera, combat, like combat photography. You get embedded with various units. You're just taking photos for the DOD. And I was like, fuck yeah, sign me up. I'm going to do three years minimum, hopefully not deploy. I'll get combat camera. I'll get all the experience and photos that I need for Nat Geo and I get free college. I was like, I'm in. So I went full send into that, and then after MEPS, final process, I sold my everything. I sold my truck. Uh, I go to the lady, and she's like, all right, so what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be combat camera. She's like, fuck no. She's like, you can be infantry, or you can be a cook. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck's infantry? And she's like, you know, you're like throwing hand grenades and shooting guns. And I was like, fuck yeah, dude, I played Rainbow Six. Let's go. Rainbow Six. I love that they give that to you as your explanation. Ours was, do you like camping? Do you do you like being outside? Do you like going for long walks in the woods? Because if so, infantry is for you. <laughs> I'm not kidding, man. I'm not kidding. That's how they reference when they are trying to get somebody in the Canadian military like recruited. At least that was my personal experience of somebody being like, "Do you like camping? Do you like being outside? If so, infantry is for you." Little do you know. Right? Little do you know. <sighs> so I wasn't given an option. She's like, nope, these are your only two options. I asked if I could take a minute. I walk out of the office. I call my recruiter. I'm like, what the fuck, dude? And he's like, sorry, not sorry. And I'm like, <sighs> I, well, I have nothing anymore. Like, I don't have an apartment. I'm not moving back in with my parents. I sold my truck. And I was like, all right, let's do infantry. He's <laughs> like, ah, boy. Like, straight up like the ant from... Uh, like the Simpsons, like just smoker, raggedy ass bitch, kind of smells like pickles and sweaty hot dogs. Oh, so you painted a picture no one needed to see. <laughs> I mean, it painted a pretty clear picture. I know, but you painted it for everyone else to hear. And now I'm thinking it. And that's all I see is sweaty hot dogs and pickles. Yeah. So that's this woman that signed oh. me into the U.S. military. That's troubling for everyone involved. So she asked me if I wanted to go to Kansas or if I wanted to go to Germany. And I was like, well, duh, like I want to go to Germany. So signed up for Germany, and then she told me that I could get a $16,000 signing bonus if I went to a readily deployable unit, which is fucking taken off soon. And I said, sure, I love money. <laughs> uh, so signed up, went to basic, graduated basic, and beat feet right over to Europe. Okay, hold on. So explain something to me. What is the so the difference the the difference between a ready deployable unit and a not and a deployable unit at a later date? What I want to understand here is why would it be advantageous at any point for a military to send somebody through a um, how do you say this? Why rush it? Why rush the training of a soldier? Why 
why give the option to have to go faster than necessary? Well, I mean, obviously, we both know at this point in our lives that they didn't give a flying fuck about it. Okay, but like two thousand five, le- the surge was like popping off. Okay, and people were dying at exponentially high rates, and they needed people to fill those shoes, to fill those those numbers. Okay, fair enough. So I, I guess that's what I'm asking is I wonder why because you see the turnover rate with, with individuals who are uh, ill-trained, uh, unequipped, not ready to handle a situation and then you see the turnover rate and then they wonder why the military turnover rate is what it is. And it's like, well, if you're going to deploy people at a rapid pace due to the fact that you are impatient in training them, you're, what do you expect? Those are way too logical of questions to pose to a country that has operated very illogically over the past 20 years. Fair enough. I guess I look at it from the stance of I mean, an... I agree with you, but it's Fair. not a fact of the matter. Oh, no. I guess I look at it from... Um, I'm Now, I guess... I think before I looked at it the same way that you're speaking of, of like we knew better, like we knew that they didn't actually give a fuck. And we now know that very clearly that they have never really truly given a fuck. But I guess I'm looking at it from um, a business standpoint as a, an investment. Well, I mean, if, if we really want to get down to the brass tacks, it's a military industrial complex. Right. And their, their money and their revenue wasn't driven by casualties. It was driven by people on the ground, people that need to be outfitted, logistics in order to support those numbers. So they're gonna, I, I wanted to increase my numbers as high as possible because then I got to feed them, I got to deliver water, I got to outfit them, I got to give them the guns, and that is where all the money's being made. Right. And so, and yet everyone's like, yeah, sure, okay. I mean, to include myself. I mean, I'm not fucking not guilty of that, but it wasn't... It wasn't part of my thought process going into it. Like, I didn't give a fuck about the industrial complex. I didn't even really particularly give a fuck about the war. I knew that there was atrocities that was happening. I, I knew that 9-11 had happened. I was upset by it, but I didn't think that I was the person to, like, you know, listen to the call and go serve my country. Right. I guess I'm... <laughs> And I and I, I guess I, I see the respect in that. I guess I'm always curious when I think about individuals when they are when they are spending money on something like that, when they are you know, when they're talking about um I guess your investment in personnel and the investment in time and the amount of t- time it really takes to train a soldier. Think about that logistically for a second. Like if you go through a basic training system, I don't know how you guys work. Maybe you can run me through how the United States does their training in terms of, say, from point A to B, you get the recruiter call from your mom because obviously the recruiter's calling your fucking mom if you're an American. So the recruiter's calling your mom. Recruiter calls Nick's mom. Nick's mom goes, my son's a piece of shit. He needs to join the military. Nick joins the military. Cool, I'm down. What happens once you hit basic training? What does that look like? What's your path to becoming a sniper? So it depends on what your desired MOS is. I know that... With the Marine Corps, at some point in time, sometimes you don't get to choose. With the Army, at least you got to choose. Well, I didn't really particularly get to choose, but I was given at least options. So it depends on every MOS, but I was infantry, and so I got sent to Fort Benning, Georgia. And with infantry, it's called OSIT, or One Station Unit Training. And so with a lot of other MOSs, say they'll go to, to basic training in Georgia, and then they'll fly to Texas for AIT which is advanced individual training. And that's where you actually learn your job. Basic training is just to shave your head, kick your ass into gear and, and, uh, you know, try to mold you from the dick sucking 18 year old that you were in order. You said it that you're, you said it again, that you, you stated that you were the dick sucking teenager. Nobody else stated that. Well, you you shouldn't have said that you should have called yourself. 
You should have thought that through. It's a metaphor. Okay. Well, the metaphor is being taken seriously at this point. <laughs> so that's on you now. That's you're on the, you. You're the only one keeping count. Well, it's okay. I'll keep count, but there will be a count. Yeah, you actually heard keeping count. Yeah, I have things to do. Yeah. This is part of my life. So once you graduate basic, then you go to AIT, um, and then that's where you conduct all your training. But for infantry, you just stay there. Nothing really changes. Just as opposed to doing eight weeks and nine weeks, you're doing 14 weeks. What's the chances you're getting stuck in between courses? Because I've heard, at least in the U.S. military, a lot of people get put on PAT. Is that what you guys call it? We call it PAT at home. No, no, there's no pad, but like if you're waiting like for a billet, like let's say like you have rain or airborne in your contract okay. right after basic. If there's no slots and you have to wait around for your slot, so you're just literally doing fucking nothing, sitting around on base for a couple of weeks until you get your billet. But going through basic and EIT, you're not waiting for anything and they want to throw you right through the pipeline because they don't want to give you an inch because they know that you're going to take a mile. Mm-hmm. Right? They're trying to break you down. They're trying to groom you and they're trying to mold you into this, this good soldier. And so... Uh, yeah, we just went right into it. But if you're waiting on like a specialty school, which is rare, uh, then yeah, you, you hang around for a little bit. Don't you have to do a certain amount of time before you can dial into a specialty in terms of special forces level type? Uh, at the time, I mean, fuck dude, they're letting anybody in. So you could have gone in with an 18 x-ray contract, mm-hmm. which is fresh off the streets, right into basic training, AIT airborne. And then you go to SFAS and every special forces selection. However, your chances of getting picked up as an E-nothing coming straight from fucking wherever you're coming from is very, very low. And especially to get your shit pushed in like that hard. But do you, okay, so, but is, it's possible. Now, the way to do that, is that like a, through physical, like, do you get attention through physical fitness? Like, are you able to prove yourself through, through testing? Like, I'm not understanding. Because what I want to know is I've heard of people going through basic and doing all the training that they need to do and then... Somebody saying exactly that they saw them doing something and were like, "Hey, this guy needs to go and at least attempt selection." They try to they try to pull you out a little bit, um, <laughs> depending on what like the drill instructors see. They're like, "Hey, maybe you should go eighteen X ray, or maybe you should go uh, like an airborne ranger contract." Okay, but typically they didn't um, because like those guys that are going out for that positions, a lot of them are E threes, E fours, E fives, and they have skill. Like, why the Got fuck it. am I going to take a basic trainee when I can you know take someone else? Right. So, hmm. uh, I didn't have any of that option in my contract, nor was it something that I thought that I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't even fucking want to be infantry from the get go. Like, I'm not just going to like raise my hand for Ranger Battalion or Special Forces. What did you want to do? What was your ideal job? Well, ideal job is combat photographer. <laughs> but at the end of it, once I, you know, had my infantry contract, all I wanted to do is just write it out and, and get out. Uh, I didn't have goals, aspirations, hopes, dreams, or desires as far as like what I thought that like my career could be. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. When you did <clears throat> infantry in the United States seems to be, um, more daunting for others. And maybe, <clears throat> maybe that's just me because I'm Canadian and I, I know plenty of people that are infantry and, or were, um, infantry. And for whatever reason, it just feels very different when I talk to a Vandu or I talk to an RCR or a PPCLI. Actually, no, PPCLI are probably the, the closest reference point I would consider to an American military member because the PPCLI fuck hard. And they are the 3rd Battalion. Like the, Some of these guys are some of the coolest people I've ever met. And I'm just, they're just solid. They're solid switched on people. And don't get me wrong, there's RCR like that. There's probably Vandus like that. I didn't fuck with those guys. I didn't talk with them very much. But um, it's a different thing like you and I just watched something and we were discussing it and that's a I'm sorry that's a different thing 
it's it's like an ebb and flow and a give and take. It all depends on which unit you're in. What does your leadership look like? Um, and how well does your unit hold you accountable? Because when I, I was in Europe for four years and then I had PCS and I went to the States and I was there for four years. The difference between leadership, command, and discipline from Europe to the States is polar opposite. It's black and white. Because in Europe, you're almost like the bastard children of like the army, right? It's called USER, US Army Europe. You have little to no funding. Um, you can't communicate with anyone outside of base because they're all fucking Germans or Italians or like whatever. So it's incestuous and you just like stay there. And I mean, we were showing up drunk to formation all the time. Like a lot of my leadership from Europe, I looking back on it now and after the years and years that I spent in after was atrocious. Like, I don't even know how the fuck we didn't lose more guys, to be honest. Uh, what are you doing in Europe that's needing, like, uh, this is okay. That's something that I don't understand. Like, there's so many things I want to pull apart here because I don't, I don't understand it logistically. I know in Canada we send people over to some, like, we, ha- we send one or two here and there, one or two here or there. But we don't have bases in Germany. We don't have bases in Italy. We don't have bases in South Korea. We don't have bases in fucking Japan. We have, you know what I mean? Like, so what the hell are you doing on a daily basis and why is the funding so poor? And if the funding's so poor, why are you even there in the first place? It, it's kind of like a, like a lot of people want to be there because it's, it's Europe, right? And you have the freedom to travel. You get paid a little bit more money. But if you want to progress your career, it's next to impossible. Because if you want to progress your career and go to a school, we don't host a lot of those schools in, in Europe. So you have to fly back to the States, which means it's costing the Army three times the amount of money to send you who's in Europe as opposed to sending somebody that's in like Fort Riley, Kansas. So, I mean, my first four years there was just nothing but getting drunk and fucking chasing chicks and snowboarding in the Alps, but it wasn't career progression. It wasn't schools. It wasn't, it wasn't anything that was going to do me any good whatsoever. And it was just, it was fucking debauchery. However, you know, that's the same unit that I went to Ramadi with and we're fucking dialed in. And like those guys were squared away and they were savages and they were degenerates, but they were good at their job like they were good at killing and that's all that we needed them for at that time yeah because we were like we were just like the thing that we were just watching and some of the conversation that came up um we was just discussing very briefly about you know we go there and we are what are we there for it's like we're there to win the hearts and the minds what's like we're not winning the hearts and the minds it just got to the point where you're fighting the mob You're, you're helping the mob you know take people out you're helping you're helping people you're trusting people who look like the enemy to tell you that that person should be killed because of X, Y, and Z. And you're just like, yeah, fuck it. Cool. I trust you. Cool. I'll go take him out. Yeah. And, and it was completely acceptable on fucking all fronts. And like, who's playing judge and jury? Like, are we, are they like, there's always three truths. It's theirs, mine and, and the actual one. And like, we didn't know any different, but to be honest, we didn't fucking care because like one more dead of them is one less dead of us. Right. So what I want to know is when, at what point did you, so you went to Ramadi with these guys. So you train with these guys, you spent a lot of time with these guys. At what point did you go from being an infantry member to a sniper? Like at what point did you go to sniper school? Cause you guys have, I'm assuming you have, I know you have sniper school. I don't know what it's called. I don't have the logistics behind it, but do you, do you get what I'm saying here? Yeah. How did you, how did you take that step from Europe deployment to moving up into that? So my first tour in Ramadi, we did 15 months there. Um, 15 fucking months? 15 months. That's unhealthy. Nobody should be on a deployment more than six to nine months at a maximum for psychological reasons. Yeah. And we were directly attached to the, uh, to the SEAL teams there in Ramadi on Camp Corregidor. 
And so when we first got there, Team 3 was there. And so, you know, we're getting buddy-buddy with Team 3. We're providing mutual assets. We're helping them out. And then three roots out, five comes in. And then it's the same process. But then the same team from three came back. And they're like, what the fuck are you guys still doing here? Oh, there's so many weird trident jokes there um, mm. of you just jumping on. But there's also the fact of the matter is there is no reason that you guys should have been there by the time Team 3 came back. Well, I don't know. That, no, that's I an get... army question. That's above my pay grade, as they would say. Okay, fair. And, and I understand that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is at no point was that necessary for you guys to be on a deployment that long. We, the British military, at least, I, correction, the Canadian military, I'm not sure what the British are doing anymore or what they were doing at what point. But I know for me, some of the guys I served with, the max they were doing nine month, was nine months. There's absolutely no reason for anybody to be in a country any longer than that. There's reasons why, at least in my government, back when I was a soldier, they would say, if you're there for six months, you're back for a minimum of six months. No if ands or buts about it, no questions. And I mean, I'm not talking special forces. They, they they play by a different rule book. Those guys go in and out like it's going out of style. Us, on the other hand, it's a different kind of conversation, right? And so it's a whole regiment that goes. It's like the whole vaquitze, all pedawawa. It's like a, everyone's being ripped. So it's a completely different thing. But I, I guess what I'm trying to understand is the reasoning behind keeping somebody there that long, I understand they may know the country and I understand the, the value and the assets and having individuals that know, you know, every corner, every, every guy that's standing on that street, that they've got them paying them to tell you when the Taliban were like, I understand the importance of knowing your, you know, your ground, but it re- that what that really says to me is there was no, at no point was your psychological state ever taken into account in terms of the length of these deployments. No, not at all. Not, not even in the slightest. And I mean, a tour that long essentially just boils down to logistics and poor, like senior officials running the numbers, moving people back and forth, deploying certain units, pulling back certain battalions. And like that was a failure on their part. I mean, there was a unit that was there for 28 months back to back, like 28 months. They got on a plane. They flew to Kuwait. And as soon as they got to Kuwait, they were getting off the plane. They're like, nope, stay on. You guys are actually having to go back because there's no one here to relieve you. And so they had to go right back. How is that possible? Because there's no reasoning. There's there's no reasoning that should be legal. It's a fucking army. They don't give a shit what's legal. I, I think that's a fucking cop out. And it's war. I think that's a cop out. I get it's war. But there's, come on, Canada has half the soldiers you guys have, has half the equipment you guys have. And trust me, that's why we didn't, apparently, as I was told, didn't send anyone. I was told the PPSCLI during the Afghan pullout got told to sit down and shut up. And that was a quote from a leadership member. So, you know, we had a quarter of the fucking people you guys had. And we were rotating in and out on a regular basis. And we seemed to figure it out. I don't think there's ever an excuse to be made for individuals that cause people to be going on deployment for that long. Yeah. I mean, nothing that we can do about it now. And, and it is what it is. And it happened in Vietnam. And it's going to happen again because fucking stupid people are still going to be stupid. And there's right. going to be stupid people in leadership. So what do you think? Okay. So then uh, riddle me this, Batman. What do you, what, if you could pick an optimal amount of time, because you have been nine months. Okay. Hands down nine months, because the first two that you get in, you're learning the situation, you're learning the ground, you're learning the people, you're learning names in the environment. And then the next five months, 
is purely operational. You're doing DAs, you're doing air assaults, you're doing recce, you're, you're doing whatever the fuck your task is. And then the next two months, you're kind of wrapping up, you're doing what we call left seat, right seats, and you're talking to the new unit coming in, giving them the lay of the ground, and you're just kind of like winding down. And so it boils down to five months of like high operational tempo, um, which is sustainable. How many deployments have you done? Uh, I did three with the army at a total of, so first one is 15, second one is 12, and then third one is nine. And then contracting was another uh, 18 months. So collectively I have like 40 and some change. Whoever's listening can do the math. Okay. Okay. So, okay. And, and so you're Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. And contracting. Yeah. And contracting. And that was in Afghan as well. No, that was in Iraq. That was in Iraq. Yeah, that was on the embassy. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes a little more sense. Okay. So when you're going on these deployments, tell me, were you on a sniper? Were, you were not a sniper on your first deployment. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to go back to your question, right. my, my first deployment, I ended up getting tasked because come to find out I was really, really bad in garrison as far as behaving myself. Who are you? Yeah. Yeah. No, no shock. <laughs> No, shit, no one's right. shocked. Nobody's shocked. You're not watching this because I don't have cameras here, but you're not watching this. Nobody's shocked, Nick. Yep. And then, so I ended up getting tasked out. Uh, so when I was deployed, I ended up being halfway decent. So I got tasked out to be on an SKT uh, to help support our snipers. And an SKT is a small kill team. And so we had a, a sniper pair, uh, Craig Stout and Adam Peoples, and they would go out to do completely independent missions in the city. But that city was fucking batshit at the time Ramadi yeah Ramadi 06 07 so we got tasked out and I was a saw gunner as a private uh to watch the door set up claymores uh gag whoever's in the house because like we would take a house we're like all right this one's right and so we just go in there ball up the people separate the men and women ball and gag them stay in there for 12 hours and then leave question don't mean to interrupt yeah. question though yeah what was that what, what, what would happen because you guys didn't have women there's no fucking way you had no. women. You didn't have women. No, you did not. So what are you doing with those women and kids at that date? Because at that time, because you guys, I know, didn't start fucking with women. At least I know the British didn't start fucking with women until a little bit later when they started bringing the odd individual on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fuck, we didn't, we didn't do that until uh, my third tour. But in the beginning, we would just go in there. Uh, we'd corral all the women, put them in one room, separate them from the men so that way they can't corroborate. Right. And then we just put one fucking private on the door to watch them as... But not on of, not on the inside. No, on the inside of the house. Because, like, we couldn't be seen. We didn't want them to know that, like, we were... We had taken over the house. And Go, so, oh, okay, okay, I get so it, we I get were, it. we were sneaking in at night. We would take the house. Like, we weren't doing debt charges. We weren't doing anything. We would sneak in. And then just like straight up walk over, put our hands over their mouth, tell them to shut the fuck up, zip tie them, gag them, and then put the men in one room and the females in another, and we just watch them for the next 12 hours. Individual targets that you're targeting, or is this like a mass raid and move? Uh, it was, at the time, it was for suspected sniper positions, because we had a lot of snipers in the city, and Got then it. suspected like roads that were continuously being laden with IEDs. Uh, if drones were seeing it, so then we would set up sniper overwatch on this road and essentially like bait and hook them and just like Got it. wait, wait for him to go down. So it was during this time that I was working with, uh, Craig and Adam and th they were our two snipers. That's a target rich environment at that time. So they were dropping fucking people left and right. Well, in Iraq, I mean, you guys de dealt with a little bit of a different, different layout of the land. Um, at least m from what I, what I personally experienced, 
I know a buddy of mine, Chris Gould, he's no longer with us. He died on his last deployment. He went to Iraq, um, very beginning of the of all of that. And I remember him saying very, very, you know, specifically, like, this is a, Iraq was a different thing. So different. And especially, like, where I went to in Afghanistan was up in the Kunar. So it looked like uh, the Rockies. Right. And, like, there was no buildings. There was no road. You know, there was none of that. And then in Ramadi, it was a big city of just nothing but corners and alleys and and high rises can you give me try to give the listeners a visual so like how many stories are in each building on average on average most of the iraqi buildings are i'd probably say four stories tall um maybe three stories tall they all love to like sleep on the roofs at night because it's so hot there in the summers um so there's that and then especially in ramadi because it was one of the bigger cities they would they had a hotel there that was probably like 15 stories uh, they had a hospital there that was a few stories higher, um, but nothing really exceeded four stories. Okay, so and you're talking. I'm obviously I know what you're looking at. So you're talking like tight knit, very close city. You're talking wall like the the building between the spaces between building to building. How far apart would you say there? Uh, some of them, a lot of them, you could jump from roof to roof. Exactly. So you're the sniper position opportunities, the RPG position opportunities, the opposition to be able to attack you from a high vantage point when you're driving through with Humvees is pretty much. I mean, it's fucking a hundred percent of the time. Okay. If you're driving around in Humvee, like you're fucked. Yeah, you got the low ground. Okay. And so, yeah, a large part of our process was if we're doing a big mission, big patrol, I would go with the sniper team, and we would set up. I would you know, set charges, lock all the doors, make sure that we were as hidden as completely possible. And they were setting up some serious hindsights. And then I would get word from up top, you know, they would end up whacking a few guys on the road. Uh, once you do that a couple times, then you have to exfil because your position is compromised. So then we'd package up and then we'd call in a vehicle, the vehicle would come in, we'd just jump right back in the vehicle and then bounce out uncuff everybody and then just let them go about their life so the people that you take out your targets once the targets that you've just say you're you're firing back what happens with that uh, the dogs eat them okay cool i just wanted to clarify for everyone that was listening that didn't understand do you get it now do all of you get it now why i say heinous things it's because unfortunately there's terrifying things that happen even after a terrorist is killed there's still the gruesome graphic side of war and that is that there is no coroner to come pick up the bodies in the streets. This is this is what happens. And, I, I, you know, I, I try to talk about that pretty honestly about what happens in war um, because I think we've really done a bad job of letting people understand what happens over there. And it's not that there needs to be this dramatization or traumatic response and you know let's get the shock and awe but there needs to be a better understanding of what people see so that they fully grasp and understand why when people come back they struggle the way they struggle that right there is a perfect example of what i'm talking about you take out a bunch of dudes and i'm like what do you do what's happening with the bodies and you're like oh no the dogs eat them like that's a do you get what you understand what i'm trying to say here how like how intense that is and i think people overlook that and and overlook that that's just like a minute like 30 second point it's like oh yeah the dogs are just gonna eat these dudes now peace we're out like we're out we're rolling onto the next target that's intense like that's a heavy load to take on as a human being and understand that you know that that's going to be the result of like the people you just killed we didn't particularly give a fuck but like the funny thing is is during kind of 
our heavy operation of doing the SKTs and the sniper overwatch and stuff, the, like the dogs would straight up recognize our snipers because they were wearing slightly different uniforms and gear than us. Um, so they would follow us around because they knew it's like Pavlov's dog. So they knew, hey, if I'm hanging out with the snipers, I know I'm going to eat tonight. And I would just remember like, walking by thinking, like looking at these dogs, just like all happy, like trotting behind us. And I'm like, no fucking way. That's, I mean, that's, that right there itself is a really just fucked up thing to, to witness and, and see happen because that's exactly what you said. It's like the Pavlov's dog thing. It's like that natural selection. It's that like opportunity and animals are smart and just to see them pick up on the fact that if I follow these dudes that look like this, I'm never going to starve again. Yeah. I'm going to get fed and like plenty fed. That's and, so and dogs. Oh, yeah. I was actually keeping a journal on a lot of these kind of like overwatch missions. Really? Um, so it's kind of set to get published Q2 of next year. Um, it's a photo essay of my photography from that tour in Ramadi uh, coupled with complete photocopies from my green book journal that I have over here that I was taking when I was 18. And like, it was all dated. I think the first one in there is 11, 26, 2006. And I was just sitting there watching this dog eat this guy. And I started journaling. And so I want to couple my photos with the journal entries, not particularly about a book about myself, but about the experiences and about everything that transpired. So I'm, it, it will come. I promise that, but, Oh, it, I mean, I, I, I don't doubt that it, that it won't. I mean, it, it would be a letdown to society if you didn't put it out, because like I said, again, there is this understanding that people want to say war is gruesome, but do they truly really understand? No, fuck no. <laughs> fuck no. And like, I'm not sitting here saying I even fully understand to the extent in which you do. I'm saying in the limited experience I had not shooting over top of you peoples I I got to see enough to know that I don't want to see it again right and to for you guys to see it day in day out for the time frames that you do it it doesn't surprise me at the rate of suicide that we have it doesn't surprise me at the rate of homelessness homelessness and alcohol abuse and drug abuse you can only see so much of that before it damages you whether you realize it or not you know I, i've thought about this in so many different aspects right because i genuinely feel like i've come out with a very good head on my shoulders uh i don't particularly feel like i've suffered from uh serious detriments of pts in in any capacity to be honest uh when driving sure uh, but i'm not having night terrors i'm not losing sleep um i genuinely think that some people are, are kind of meant to be able to handle things like that a lot better than others. You know, I know another guy that was, it, he was a great guy. He was a great soldier, great guy behind a gun. And he saw and did some shit that him and I were together with on the same mission down there. And like, he's never been the same since like never. And we saw the same thing. And our level of happiness is exponentially different. Our level of su success is vastly different. And, I mean, there's a multitude of other things that we can chalk it up as, but I generally think some people are better equipped to handle those things than others. I don't know why I'm one of them, but 
Well, why are, you know, DNA, chemically, genetic, whatever you want to call it, the makeups are different. Everybody is, is vastly different, and that's why there's this no shoe fits all. There's a situation that, you know, uh, I, I talk about, many people talk about, it's your cup size. Like what, you, you know, if you see a six foot five guy and, and me who's five foot, you don't know which one's going to have a smaller cup. Just because the body size, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily compute to what they can handle from a trauma standpoint, right? The wiring in your brain, the way that we're made up, the chemical makeup, you can't know until you know. And there's no way of like, at least that I'm there's aware no of. Gauge. It, there, you can't. I mean, there's no, you, you can't, there's certain things you can train for and there's certain things you can't. And you just react at those things that you can't train for, however you're going to react. And that will be what it will be. And that's when you learn how big your fucking cup size is. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to, you got to fuck around and find out to see what you can handle. And I think there are some people that are definitely wired differently. I mean, there's many people that you and I both know and that you've gotten to know Nikki that there are, um, they can, they, I mean, they portray that they can handle a significant amount of trauma or what they call like successful missions, but they, they can handle things differently. And I always sit there and wonder like, what, you know, what did I do wrong or what could I have done better that maybe I would have handled things differently? And then I, I've had to look at that and kind of flip that on its head because I used to think like that. And I'm like, I don't, you know, I don't think that's the thing anymore. I think we're all wired so differently that we can't truly, we can't truly know until we know. And you can't walk the clock back once you know, right? You can't unsee what you've seen. And trauma is is hard. And, you know, people are like, well, it depends. Like, if you've only seen something for, like, 30 seconds, it's like, well, no. The worst you've ever seen is the worst you've ever seen. And and you can't, you can't judge how it's going to affect you until it affects you. So I just, I think pe- there's certain people that you and I know, you being one of them, for me at least, it, that handles it quite well. I mean, your fucking face says a different thing. But but you seem to handle it well from from what I hear and how I've got to know you. And you don't seem to have a lot of the same issues that um, a lot of our friends have that maybe don't let on about. But they there's things that they have that I certain people I wouldn't expect to have, but yet they do. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, a prime example is one of our section leaders when I was in recon. I was in charge of the snipers and he was in charge of uh, one of the recce sections as a E6. He was tabbed out, big as shit, like the most intimidating guy you've ever seen, and in combat, hands down, just like the most stellar soldier of all time. And then I woke up one morning to get a phone call that he had killed himself. This is the last motherfucker on the face of the planet that I ever thought in my life I would get a phone call like that over. He was the epitome of just strong machismo, skilled, qualified. Um, and to be honest, I, I would even go so far as to guess that he might have at one time just been like, oh, suicide's for pussies. Like, why are you doing that? And, you know, next thing we know, I get a phone call from our good friend and he took his life in the parking lot on base at, at the hotel over, you know, a shitty dispute. And I couldn't wrap my head around that. I could not wrap my head around this one guy. There's been many others that have seen like plausible I'm like okay but not him do you, okay so this is what I kind of went I was I was going into before you brought I'm, I'm glad you brought up an, an individual like this because this is kind of where I was going into about people being able to handle different things and people that you wouldn't think would handle things um, better than others and you seem to handle everything you know fairly well 
from on the outside and from what I know, you seem to handle it fairly well. You metabolize the trauma, if you will, better than most. And somebody like this, when you're talking about people who you're like, ah, there's no way this guy would have done that. I always wonder, right, what other factors don't we know about? Because more than likely, the majority of people and I'm speaking in really broad terms because I'm talking, I guess, the people that we know or I know that we both collectively know, excuse me, there is this understanding that somebody's at least at least been divorced once. They've had a DUI. They've done something really fucking stupid on another spectrum. Like, there is this understanding that these people are broken. And so when you deploy and you come home and you're struggling with issues have already deployed, you know, things that you've deployed with and they just stick with you and you come home and then you're already dealing with now that on top of now, say you're getting a divorce now, say maybe you're getting your children taken away from you now, say maybe you're losing your everything and you don't have a job to fall back on. That's how I see this happens. I don't see this happen necessarily just from maybe trauma and I'm sure there's a ton of that but there this is a whole bigger picture situation in my eyes I feel like I I almost at this point in time have seen the bigger picture not only from my own experiences but also from just overanalyzing friends and and the multiple other suicides so I was always the for the wrong I was the person that used to talk shit about those that would commit suicide because I saw it as like the most selfish act and not because it's not that I was angry at them, you know, it's not that like I was trying to degrade the person that they were, but I was just so upset and hurt that they wanted to leave everything behind that I, I would pass judgment. And so after my divorce, I went through the fucking gnarliest rut of my entire life. I lost my job at the same time that I had just, you know, been left my 10 year marriage I had no fucking money to my name. I was living in Mexico and I went off the rails and I went from 210 pounds of 170. I didn't talk to anybody. I closed everything off. I felt like a failure. I was embarrassed. And that was my first and only real introduction to depression. And I didn't eat for seven days. I ended up driving up north to San Diego and I went to the VA and I just started bawling in front of my primary care provider. And she's like, oh, fuck, you look like a mess. Let me hand you over to the psych. So I go to the psych doctor and I, I tell him my story. I tell him everything that's gone on. And he's, guess what? Meds. Here's these antidepressants. Um, side effects are minimal. These are going to help. And I was like, I'll, I just want anything that will help. And so I started taking them. And I took them for seven days. And I had every single side effect known. I was shaking so uncontrollably, I couldn't write. I couldn't type. I couldn't even text because I couldn't, like, it was like tapping. Like I was going through hypothermia. I was sweating profusely. No sex drive. I didn't eat. I would sleep maybe two hours a day. And I I just got to a point where I was like, fuck this. And I just threw him down the toilet and I didn't touch him again. I never went back in the VA for any of it again. And it took hitting rock bottom and doing a shit ton of narcotics and poisoning my body to to have this aha moment and looking around at myself and the situation that I'd created and realizing that I wasn't doing anything to get out of it. And I was like, 
I got to unfuck this. And so I excused myself. I stood up. I grabbed a bottle of tequila, a pack of cigarettes, and I went upstairs to my roof. And I sat up there for the next seven hours, and I watched the sunset or the sunrise. And it was from that moment where I was like, you can't fucking do this anymore, dude. Like, you got you to gotta put on your big boy shoes and, like, get after it. And then I did. And then after that, I was like, okay. And I started focusing on now I need a job. Now I need to leave. Now I need to find another place. And uh, I think that a large part of the reason for these other guys killing themselves, you know, my situation's completely independent. Um, <clears throat> I think that they're geographically limited, right? So you get out of the army, and I experience this exponentially. Like, no one's trying to fucking hire a sniper in San Diego. At all. It's not a welcomed position in a large city space. Not whatsoever. Shooting at moving targets in the city space is not ideal situation. No one wanted me. You know, I couldn't be a bar back. I couldn't be a fucking valet. And so I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I had to try to find another option. And that's a much longer story. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, is I am geographically gifted because I live in a city that has a booming economy and has a multitude of things that I can pursue. If you're a really good fucking sniper in the army with a prestigious career and you get out and you move back to small town Ohio, all you got is the fucking local watering hole, the gas station, and the coal mine. There's nothing there to nurture your creative process. There's nothing there to um, maybe allow you to pursue another career path. There's nothing there to assist you in any way other than getting fucked up with Boomhauer and then going to work you know, the next morning at the coal mine. And that repetitiveness and that loss of a family structure that they once felt like in the tribe uh, within the military is now completely fucking devastated and gone. And they have no one else that's going to answer to them. And it's the same repetitive, whimsical bullshit of people that are just toxic, um, that have no goals or aspirations, and they get caught up in this life, and then they fucking kill themselves. Every one of my friends that's killed themselves has lived in podunk gas places. Now, I'm not saying that in like a detrimental aspect, but what I'm saying is they're not in L.A., they're not in San Diego, they're not in San Francisco, they're not in Atlanta. It's a, a lot to do with geographics, going back to the life that they tried to leave before because they joined the military, and now they come right back to it because they got nowhere else to go. And now they have no support structure. And so, of course, they shit the fucking bed. They get drunk. They take these pills. And then at some point in time, some night, it sounds like a good idea to pull the trigger. Yeah, that's that's a lot. And you touched on something that I find that's really important to acknowledge, and that's the lack of community. That, that community structure is so overlooked, I think, in terms of the giving the individual a ability to have a fighting chance. The lack of community is by far and large, if I, in my personal opinion, not being a fucking doctor or anything, just being, just, just being me, lack of community is one of the hardest things to overcome. It's one of the most overlooked. It's one of the, underutilized tools in our in and the space that we we all seem to work in and thrive in but yet community is still lacking a true i mean a true community so that's a problem though is sifting through the bullshit in order to find that true community and i think that the large right. dichotomy of all of this 
is like, for example, when I got out, I wanted nothing to do with the military or to be in that community anymore because I knew that I had to reassimilate back into this world. And so if I'm consistently surrounding myself with people that are telling gloating more stories, if I'm surrounding myself with the people that I was once surrounded by, that's going to make my transition into this civilian world exponentially more difficult because you're not learning anything new. You're still surrounded by the same people. I didn't tell people that I was in the military for years when I got out because I didn't want to be judged. What I wanted to do is I wanted to hear what they're talking about. I don't know what a bunch of vets sitting around in a circle talk about. I don't know what a bunch of civilians sitting around at the fucking bar table talk about. Do you think you would have been judged? Truth like that? Do you really, really believe that? 160 resumes proves that I was fucking judged. Really? 160 sent out with a fucking dialed in resume and I never got one call back. Not one. Wow. And that was for valets. That was for barbacks. That was for kayak tour guides. And that's when you had the military on there. And that's and that's because I had the military on there. I can't erase the past eight years of my career and I just got out. And like, how the fuck do you try to manipulate the words that says battalion sniper section leader? Well, you can't because when you see sniper, you know, that's the one thing in the military that you can look at as a civilian and know exactly what it means. I literally said on there, I was like, as job title it was, or job taker status. of souls. It was in charge of uh, over 15,000 soldiers level of proficiency on equipment. Uh-oh. That was how I, I called myself like a senior firearms instructor. Okay. Was proficiency at said job. Proficiency. So I feel like that's pretty fucking vanilla and it wasn't enough. It's as white as it gets. Um, I mean, that makes sense. I, that makes 100% sense. That's just crazy to me because that right there is one, I think one of the biggest problems is we we give our military these, these fucking really cool, highly trained, proficient soldiers. We give them these tools and we give them these weapons and we give them these opportunities and they travel the world. They do, they do some of the most, you know, dangerous tasks there are. And then we bring them back to... Western culture, these Western civilizations that we have, these first world countries, and we take them out of the military or we let them release, and somehow we let them release with the knowledge. They're, they're very full well known of that. They know the Canadian, at least the Canadian, they know this. Like they did this to me. They'll put a piece of paper in front of you when you're at your fucking weakest moment and go, if you just sign this, you can leave right now. You can leave right now. You don't have to worry about paperwork. You don't have to fight with Veterans Affairs. You don't get... But you also don't get support. You don't get help. You don't get treatment if you need it. You don't get anything. But you can do it right now if you just want this all to stop. And so they know what they're doing. They understand that if we if we hit them at a certain point, they'll just... They'll get out and it'll be one less person we have to worry about. They didn't want me to get out. They wanted me, well, when I did get out, they wanted me to stay in. And so they essentially, to your credit, like said, hey, here's what we call a deck statement, which is a uh-huh. declination of service statement. So they said, if you sign this paper, you can never reenlist back in the military. You can't come back in. You can't look back. Like, you're done. You're PNG'd. And because I came down on drill orders. And so it was E6 promotable to 7. And I finished my squad leader time. And so now I need to go to a billet, right? So I need to go to a, uh, be a, an instructor 
and I came down on orders for drill sergeant for uh, mixed gender MP basic training class. What? Yeah. Okay, that, hold on. They classify your training classes based on gender? No, it's just it, it's based on MOS. So, like, I was only used to the infantry, right? I was only used to recce. Oh, so you but were going to get a But they sent me to go mi- be a drill for, for military police, which is mixed gender. And, like, I don't know anything about that world. And also, I just went through all these fucking schools and all these deployments. And, like, that's how you feel best to utilize me and my assets. Well, what I want to know is why did they at any point think that you would be the right instructor to teach military police after you were sniping people in the face? I mean, that's... The very same question I asked. Oh, my brain hurts at this conversation. There's certain points in this conversation that I just feel like the rational, the rationale just goes right out the window. There is no, there is no understanding some of this. And and again, I get it. It's the military. I, it's the hurry up and wait. It's the, it's all of it. I I, I get that. But I'm still, my brain is still a little broken at some of these statements you're saying because. This is the diff- the difference between the Canadian military and the US military is very obvious at this point to me. Like I'm sure this stuff happens in our with our people, but I've never fucking heard of it to the extent in which it happens to you guys on a like a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to tell you other than the fact that we're largely more involved in the war that we created and you guys just kind of helped us. So I Yeah, mean, we didn't have a choice. We have this thing called NATO that we're a part of where you guys go fucking annoy people and then decide like, hey, we're going to come in and we're going to fuck around and find out. But we're but here's the thing. You have to come with us because you signed the treaty. Yeah. You didn't do anything. You're at not, least you guys showed up with the best snipers. I mean, you're not prepared. You don't have the final backing. Well, especially you motherfuckers. Like, you're busy, like, riding moose around horses we, sudden, now it's uh we ride horses donkeys in afghanistan we ride horses i don't know about that you can't even legally own a chainsaw so we legally can't own chainsaws um we have no freedom of speech our social media is highly censored and can be used against us in the charter of rights now um you know what we do have though that you Poutine. ah besides that and there's so many other great things we have something you don't have that you guys haven't even done, which shocks the shit out of my system. I can't wait to hear this. You ready? Yeah. It's not even that big of a deal. Well, it's, it's a pretty <laughs> big de- It's a big deal to me because I care about animals and I care because I am a caring, loving, compassionate individual. Uh-huh. That's what people call me. Yeah. That's, those are the words people use when they describe me. Kelsey is a caring, calm, quiet, compassionate human being. Let's take a poll. All of those. So we... Canada, and by we I mean Phil Demir, we are the only country that has made it. If I'm not, if I'm not incorrect, somebody will correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure we are the only. Canada is the first country, at least, to ban the captivity of orca, will, and porpoises. For so that's us, though, leading the way in the charge. Don't mind us. You guys keep invading, fucking the world up, and we'll just keep saving animals. I mean, I'm down for it. And I'm making the for arm for the uh, International Space Station. We made the International Space Station arm. Uh, arm. We made the arm. Right. We have the toonie. You can't jerk off without an arm. Hey, hey, but that toonie, you want to hear this story? That toonie was invented in Campbellford, Ontario. So is it frowned upon to like throw loonies and toonies at strippers? Yeah, it's called, a, it's called the, was it called the stick and flick or the lick and stick? Or the lick and flick? Is it like you put like Vaseline on it? We call it stripper darts. No, you lick it, you lick it, you lick it with your... You look, uh, and like, then you flick it. Okay, I can. I can. I think I, that's. I think I'm I can literally gonna, get behind that. I'm. I mean, it's pretty easy. I'm getting canceled for that because see, <laughs> that was that was a good flick there. That would be. I could see that sticking. It's it's the lick and it's the lick and flick. 
Nick's got it down. The patented lick and flick. That's that's Nick. Best there's a few we're... other. Uh, there's a few other tricks. I oh, learned. okay. I, yeah. I feel like that comes from other stories. That's something else I want to talk to you about. So your deployments are all one thing, and 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 you know being married and all of that's a whole other thing. And then you went through a divorce, and then you you were you you mentioned to me. So you were a contractor. I was. Okay, so walk me through what that looks like. for Because when I say contractor to the normal civilian public that's listening to this, they kind of go, great, yeah, my brother's a contractor. I'm like, nope, not the same. Not the same contractors, my friends. Yeah, there's a big difference between Halliburton and uh, various other companies out there. So when I was fucking broke and no one wanted to hire a sniper after the 160 resumes that was sent out, it, it straight up got so bad to the point where I had sold every knife, every Arteryx jacket, anything of worth that I had, uh, I sold in order to try to keep us afloat. And once there was no other option, uh, I ended up looking up military contractor positions. Luckily, I had ample deployment time on my resume, which fit their bill. And then I also had all the schools that they were looking for. Uh, so I ended up getting, I signed on with Triple Canopy, uh, which is owned under Constellus, and I got sent over to Moyoc, uh, which is the original Blackwater uh, location uh, and facility. So I trained there, I went through the WIPS program, uh, graduated the WIPS program, and then stayed there for another two weeks waiting for their sniper school to, to start up, because even though I already had sniper school under, I had to go through the State Department. Okay, wait, hold it. Yes, yeah, so that's what I was going to say. You just broke my brain there. So you, you were already a sniper who had already deployed as a sniper, and then yet you had to go do new sniper school training? Yeah, I had to go through a okay. whole other sniper school uh, through the State Department, and that was because of essentially treaties, Geneva Conventions, uh, legalities. They don't want to, like, essentially they still want to vet you again after you've already been vetted. And so I had to go through okay. another many, many week uh, sniper program there at Blackwater. Uh, which is actually a great school. Uh, and then as soon as I graduated that, they said, you want to go to Baghdad? And I said, fuck yes, because I have probably about $8 in my bank account. And then I took off. Jeez. What year were you in Baghdad? Oh, shit. Uh, this is 2000, late 2015, 16, and then a little bit in the 17 is when I was contracting over in Baghdad for the State Department. Okay, and so you're doing State Department. So they, they accepted training through Blackwater. This, that's how they did it. So the State Department. Yeah, yeah. Constellus and, and the State Department and, and the same with other agencies all had mutual contracts with them. And so Constellus was providing them all those people to, to fill all those billets. Okay. So, and this was 15, so that, that was after the, that was well after the Blackwater incident. That... Yeah, yeah, that was well after it. Um, it was crazy. You know, I was going through the Blackwater program. I read Eric Prince's book. Right. Um, I was actually incredibly impressed. Uh, I appreciated his honesty. And then fortunately at one of my parties that I threw at SHOT Show, I was able to have a few drinks with him and kind of pick his brain and talk to him. Um, it, it's just, it's such an incredible facility. And if you look at it from like a tactician perspective and an entrepreneurial perspective, I mean, Eric Prince filled so many gaps in the military and what we needed to provide um i mean i had nothing but admiration for it yeah there's mixed reviews yeah um, yeah there certainly is and every every year is different there and right. it depends on who owns the contracts and like once eric left the company and it turned into z and then academy and you know blah 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 um 
I mean, he can't take ownership of it, you know, at that point because right. they just manipulate it to be whatever they want. They wanted to be politically correct. Because, like when I watched 13 Hours, like their relationship with the agency and the contractors was fucking spot on. Oh, it really? was absolutely spot on. Uh, there's complete disregard for your life, your safety, uh, mission success. And, you know, unfortunately, we had Benghazi as a prime example of, of what that level of failure looks like. Um, but when I was there, you know, even as a sniper, I had to like pack my gun away in a different bag and like cover it with like towels and shit just to take it like to my vehicle on the embassy because a sniper rifle is way too scary. Uh, you know, to, to people, even to State Department people. Did that have anything to do with the individuals at power? Uh, I'm sure that it did, um, but it also had everything to do with the, the discrepancies of private military contractors operating downrange. You know, everyone back home here in the States was throwing this huge fit over private military contractors during the Obama administration, during the Bush administration. It doesn't fucking matter what president's in office. They were throwing a fit over it. But what they didn't realize is like, that's the most efficient way to do this as opposed to what you're blindly not paying attention to, which is the global military fucking industrial complex. Yeah, that's a whole other animal, but also didn't, and I mean, again, I don't have anyone here to corroborate this or, or clarify this for me, but and I'll go into it. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Obama have one of the highest drone strikes in presidential history? That's my belief. And to be honest, I don't fucking knock it and I'm not mad about it. The only thing that I'm mad about is the lack of intelligence that is being conducted prior to these drone strikes. Right. And you know, now I'm saw, but at the time, like, I didn't give a fuck if somebody died that w wasn't supposed to die. Right. You're still harboring terrorists. You're still supporting in right. some capacity. Like, I don't fucking give a shit about collateral damage. This is war. Like, what's going to happen is going to happen. Do I want it to happen? Fuck no. But do I also have the big red button in the Pentagon? Fuck no. So, like, not my problem. I understand mm -hmm. that that is being completely counterproductive to coin and to instilling a democracy because now you just blew up a fucking school bus full of children. Mm -hmm. But like, do I care? Am I going to lose sleep over it? No. Do I think that it's doing us any fucking favors with regards to this war? Hell no. No. We, I mean, especially if it's hearts and minds, like again, that goes back to what we were watching. If it were, if the true, if the true want and need is, is hearts and minds, win the community, get the community, implement democracy and then hand them the government back to them. If that's truly what we're doing, we failed a long time ago. We barely even scratched the surface before we were starting to fail. Fuck, that's such a long conversation. But, I mean, I was up in the middle of the mountains in Afghanistan, and this old, old Afghani guy came up to me and said something to me in Pashtun. And I looked at our translator and asked him what he said, and he called me a dirty Russian. <laughs> Keep in mind, like, we haven't been there since 87. So this guy still thinks that I'm a Russian, which is from 30 years ago. Do you think that he fucking even has a clue or concept as, as a, like what's going on in Kabul? As, no. As far as political parties, like you're so far separated from it and lack of communication there. Like that, that was just to make everyone back home feel better about voting for trillions of dollars in expenses and troop surges and all that shit. I remember very clearly in uh, 2007 when Canada, I want to say Harper was in. And he was conservative. 
and I remember not really understanding politics and still to this extent, to this extent, I don't understand politics as much as I would like to. It's mainly because the idea of staring or learning or hearing just Justin Trudeau's voice really just makes me want to smash my face off a concrete wall until it bleeds. Um, but that's a different conversation for another time. So I, I struggle to learn and understand that because of the, the just the, the fucking voice that I'd have to listen to to learn that. My point is here is that, you know, I remember when Harper was in and I remember hearing them say, we were going to in, increase the budget, the military budget. This was like 2007, 2008. We were going to increase the military budget. And we were going to make sure that the troops on the ground had everything they needed to be fighting. And I remember very, very vividly being in Afghanistan and thinking about those M777s that we were getting to shoot. And then the, them breaking down and the cost of those. And then somebody saying to me, like, one of the reason we move these in the air is because like a barrel on one of these is like a million bucks. It's insane. And then I just, I remember hearing on the news, we got all new triple sevens because of Harper. And I was like, I fucking love that dude because he gets that when you're sending people over there, you need to give them the equipment to do it. That was very naive of me. I was 18 year old, 18 years old. And what I didn't realize is that the first night on my OP post, we didn't have fucking NVGs. So like, Hey, cute story. And people give me shit when I do, when I did a bunch of other shows, they're like, there's no way this person went on an OP tower for four hours at night and didn't even have MEGs. There's no way they're that ill-equipped. Well, listen, motherfucker, guess what? That night when we they ripped out, we didn't fucking have MEGs for four hours at, at a minimum in the middle of the pitch black. So, like, that's just the reality. The reality is, is we weren't given everything we needed to function. And at the time, I thought that we were, but that's because I was naive and I was 18 years old and I was a fucking kid to go fight in a war that I didn't even know what I was fighting for. I knew that I was going... I didn't get told anything. When I did Jocko and they asked me very clearly, what was your situational awareness of the event? I don't know. Did you do the briefing? Wasn't given one. What were you there for? No fucking clue. It's above my pay grade. Bro, above my pay grade, hearts and minds, protect the women and children. That's all I got. And people are like, I hate these, I hate these four or five year old, five year in military people who make their whole life about the military and they think they know everything. No, I don't shit. I know shit. I know nothing. I know what my pay grade allowed. I know what I learned and that is it. And I'm fine with that because I don't pretend to know anything else. But the reality is, is we send people with little to no training at a rapid pace into a country with no government situational awareness, with no on the ground training, with no idea as to what's going to happen. All you know is, hey, if a guy comes knocking at the fob, you better take him out. They, they don't give you the understanding of the country because they, for whatever reason, they're like private gunner, bombardier, bombardier shift, and whatever you want to call them. We don't need to know what's going on. We just need to know how to fire the gun and make sure that the, the troop runs the guns properly. You don't need to worry about outside the fob. That's above your pay grade. That right there is a problem to me. When your leadership isn't is not explaining to you why you're doing what you're doing, how are you supposed to trust them? How are you supposed to go, I will go so hard for you, I jump in front of a bullet for you? You won't. You won't do it because you don't understand it. At least that's what happened to us is there was no situational awareness given at any point. And so when they say like, oh, why didn't you know what was going on? We were not told anything and so when you guys sit over here and, and I hear Americans talk about you know Kabul and and and, and the Helmand province and Kandahar and Maywan and all this I'm like I know where I've been but like 
when you guys talk about your weapons, you talk about what's going on in the country, you talk about what was just going on in, I can ask a handful of our buddies, I can ask Bishop, I can ask Griff at any point, hey, this month, this year, what was going on in this spot? And they'll be like, bang, 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 and they'll nail it off. And I'll be like, guess what? I was in the middle of all that and I was told, follow the bomb dog. Sorry, what? How? And so when people say to me, I don't understand how you... It clearly wasn't a real soldier. It's like, you got to be fucking kidding me. The compartmentalization on the, in the military is, is disgusting. It's, it's so much of a stretch. And I mean, you're, you're walking uphill into that shit just because there's, there's still a level of badge protectiveness over a badge that's completely non-existent. You know, there's, there's Trident protectors, there's TAB protectors. But like, if you're just doing infantry shit and like you served your country and you did it right, and still like inevitably people want to talk shit. And if I've learned anything after the years since I've been out, it's there's all this talk of the brotherhood and there's all this talk of camaraderie and there's all this talk of veterans, this veterans, that, but they're the first motherfuckers <laughs> to take pitchforks and light houses on fire and cause an uproar over something that they're triggered by. And right. they're fucking throwing, you know, throwing rocks at the same people that, that they are, you know, they're jumping to conclusions. They're not fucking vetting information. They're, they're upset and and it's even happened to me whereas you know my sincerity and stories have been in question by the same guys that I served with and all I did was just kill them with kindness and I'm like I failed to understand why you feel this way but I'm happy to answer any questions and then they shut the fuck up right away and essentially it just right. boils down to jealousy god damn it it's you're, you're you're it's so funny I had this conversation the episode comes out this Friday with Joe Lefko, uh Lefko from uh, Trinidad Trinidad jeans um he said to me, there, you will never, you know who else? Zach Bell. We have the fuck every guy I've had on this show. We've had this same conversation. Vets are the first people to come at another vet. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Hard. Yeah. Over fucking nothing. Like, what do you want to question about? I mean, am I not being honest enough via the podcast? I'm publicly displaying my DD-214. Like, never once has there been anyone fucking questioning things. And, like, granted, there's still a shit ton of stolen valor out there. But, like, do your due diligence and, like, get to the point and people are going to be held accountable. And especially in today's military with social media, fuck, like, it's easy to get called out and it's easy to get vetted. Right. But as soon as money gets involved, there's embezzlement, there's fucking each other's wives, there's, like, company takeovers, there's rewrites of, of contracts with lawyers. And even down on the petty level, it's, oh, I'm mad that you have your own podcast. Now we're going to fucking talk shit about you. And we're going to try to like degrade you and berate you. Right. Where do you find that much time? Actually, I'll tell you who finds that much fucking time in their day. It's the same motherfucker I was telling you about that goes to the local watering hole that works at the Piggly Wiggly and fucking right. his dad works in the coal mine. Right. And then, and then, yeah. And he's fucking pissed. Yeah, and no, and we see that, and we see that on a re, like on a repeat basis. But this is kind of one of those things I was I was touching on before. It's like when we get out of the military, they want us to get out so quick, or they allow us to get out so quick, and then we have so many people that aren't prepared. There's no preparation for individuals getting out. And and the perfect example is oh, there was a guy we ran into tonight, and it was a similar conversation. And I was like, "What do you think of that situation?" And you're like. He's not ready to get out. He's not prepared. He doesn't have anything set up. And that's what we run into. And then people wonder why they struggle when they get out. And people wonder why they struggle when they see homeless vets and wonder why there's so many of them. It's like because 
you can't exactly be like, hi, I would really like to run your company. I was a sniper. I used to shoot people in the face. Um, here are my skills. I am a really good salesperson. I'm great with weapons. My penmanship is fantastic. I also used to kill people. Like, how do you walk that into a conversation? We're not setting our people up enough to be successful. And those that aren't successful, they take the hate out on the community because they feel so jealous and they have no other way of letting it out. And really, though, all that does is hurt one another. And so I'm not quite understanding why we feel the need to attack one another on a regular basis. It, it, and it, I don't know if you noticed, but it's like wildfire when it happens. Yeah. I mean, it, luckily, it hasn't happened to me that bad, but it has happened. And there's been companies that I've been involved with. Um, you know, I've been almost PNG'd from the industry because of people that I've worked for that were discredited. And so therefore, if I'm tied to you now, I'm also discredited and PNG'd and fuck it. If we have to cut this or whatever, but I'll figure it out later. Go ahead. And so I, for the longest time was working for Brandon Webb, who is a New York Times bestselling author and, and fucking claim to fame is training Chris Kyle in the sniper cell at teams. Every fucking person that I know that I respect came to me with worry and with insight and told me that I need to watch my back. And for the longest time, I was like, not my monkey, not my circus. You right. need fucking shit on me. And so therefore, I'm not going to judge you because someone else is telling me to judge you. Uh, well, fast forward four years, I get laid off for no reason. He owes me $180,000 in debt because of a business transaction that I did with him. And he decided not to pay. And I tried to sue him and he fucking liquidated all his assets and he moved to Puerto Rico. And and he, because I was affiliated with him, is, is the reason why I was getting blackballed from the industry. Uh. And your reputation is everything in this fucking industry. Yep. And I, I learned a hard lesson there. And I had probably about fucking 12 people collectively tell me, like, don't fuck with this guy. And I did. And I didn't listen. And I got burned. And, like, I never did anything against him. Like, nothing. Like, if it, I was his personal fucking assistant, social media manager. Like, I was going with him to Ukraine to do talk business deals for marketing meetings and shit. I was like, what the fuck? But he knew that, like, my balls were held because of my employment because I didn't have another option. No one else is going to hire a fucking other sniper right. to run their marketing department. And so it, it ended up biting me in the ass and uh, fucking fool me once, but you're going to fool me twice. Well, that's really unfortunate because it's it, that, that puts a bad taste in the community's mouth, right? You, you, if you're going to work within the community, you want to at least support it in the best way that you can. And when somebody takes advantage of that and uses that against you, that's really troubling because like you said, your your reputation in this community is everything and, and we've discussed this and I've discussed this with you and been pretty open with you and Nikki about it but I've been attacked in this community before and had to vindicate myself and it's a it's a troubling it's a troubling thing if you're doing anything that's remotely exciting looking on the outside or getting clout for anything or you're just putting a little more effort than another vet you're you're going to be hit with something. And that's a sad fact of the matter. Uh, you know, we, we aim for success and we have goals and we want to be valued inevitably, regardless of what anyone fucking says. If you want to live in a cabin in the middle of the woods, you're still not going to be mad about a bunch of people liking you. And 
the further you go down that road, the worse it's going to get for you. Right. And I mean, fuck, you see it in Hollywood all the time. And, and these people that are crumbling because of comments and perceptions and DMs and like people are just fucking mean. And social media is the catalyst for all this because you're not held accountable for your actions, or your words anymore. And now you can pass judgment. I, mean, I couldn't tell you how many times I've passed judgment on somebody and I'd watch a documentary about them on Netflix and I'm like, oh shit, okay. You know, like, I, I have respect for you now. And it's just because it's human nature to pass judgment on somebody like that, whether, however the tabloids want to perceive you. And it's no different when you're talking Instagram or Facebook or fucking TikTok. Like, people don't actually know you. People don't actually know your struggles, your skill sets, your your how hard you work. They don't know any of this. All they see is a fucking post with a quantifiable, quantifiable number of, of people that like you or like this photo. And then a fucking free forum to talk shit about you or to give you praise and affirmation. And if you're some fucking cynical dude in Ohio that's bitter and drunk and doesn't have a career and he's fat as fuck and four kids and pays child support, he's going to be bitter about it and he's going to express his opinion. And it, it's not warranted, but regardless of who you are, I still feel like you might be mildly affected by that. You're still going to like, no one likes being talked bad to. Or about. And right. that's another thing. And especially when it's about you and it's in the community and you can't stop it. And it's like wildfire and it happens and it comes. And those words, yeah, there are, there is meaning to them, even if they're complete strangers, because it's piling on. It gives that feeling like you can't run away. It gives that feeling like you're being swallowed. And no matter which direction you look, whether it's your friends, whether it's strangers, whether it's people in the street, you feel like it's all caving in on you. And people's words are bad and horrific because they don't get punched in the fucking mouth anymore when they say it. They just put another Cheeto in their mouth and then type another word. There is no repercussions. And could you imagine, just for a second, if somebody actually tweeted something bad at you and all you had to do was hit a button and it said, punch him in the face. And it was like an Amazon driver that showed up at their address. <laughs> and you open the door and like, hi, it's Amazon. But it's like this new form of Amazon that people don't really know about. That's only really like for. Debo. Yeah, something like that. It's like, hi, I'm from Amazon. They open the door. No questions asked. They take a look at the photo, match the photo, just square punch the dude right in the face like and walk away. Papers. Oh, my God. Yeah, fuck. I would actually Jeff Bezos would be a trillionaire if that wasn't an option for my Amazon Prime account. I would... If I could do a one-click punch... Think about that. How effective and how much money that would make. Oh, my God. I would be dishing out a lot of them, though. Um, Bezos, you're welcome. I've been coming up with... Yeah, just... stop flying to space in a penis and let's just start punching people in the door. Can we talk about that weird-ass-shaped ship? How does Elon have such a beautiful, aesthetically gorgeous, just attractive-looking, efficient-as-fuck rocket? And this guy is like, I can make whatever I want and all of the engineers at my fingertips and I come up with literally Austin Powers penis rocket in the 21st century and I'm like, this is what I'm going to go with. I literally know that they personally do hate each other and there is a, a rivalry there. But Elon? also between Elon and, and Bezos. Well, I know this for a fact. However, Bezos is a fucking librarian that looks like Mr. Smithers. Or Mr. Burns. Yes. And like it, if that's not the quintessential fucking sign of which person's more successful or more talented, 
it's evident right there. Like he started Amazon as a librarian. Do you think that he has a fuck all clue about finding a space? No, that's why he did it in a penis. Well, I mean, I think there is, I think he's got small penis syndrome and he's kind of like one of those guys that lives in Texas that has a truck that's lifted. That's way too big. And you're like, that's called a small dick truck. If that's what his penis rocket was. So I think that's his like way of the small dick truck. He's just got a, a penis rocket. It was, but he did it so unsuccessfully. Like, could you not find like some industrial engineer to like just, come up with something shinier, which is way prettier. What? Okay. So even if it doesn't work, at least it looks better. Didn't. Okay. I, maybe I read this wrong, but did, didn't Elon send Bezos like a silver medal when he surpassed him? Yes. And there's a that's, few other stories. I'm sorry. That's gangster yes. level shit. Elon is fucking gangster. I mean, I want to talk with him. Smoking a spliff on Rogan. When Fuck smoking a spliff. I want to talk with him. I will make him smoke all the small, all the spliffs. Like I want to have a conversation with that man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you got to step in line. Don't worry about me. I got it. <laughs> Don't you worry about me. All right. Don't you worry about me. That's uh, he's a he's a curious individual. He uh, he intrigues me the way he thinks and moves his mannerisms his you ever watch his just his eyes when you watch a podcast when he goes on one just watch his eyes He ponders everything he thinks ponders is putting critically. it lightly man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean fuck he intimidates Rogan. He, he should intimidate anyone. He is the His Tesla level of, intelligence of our... intelligence is savant style. Like It's like the it, new Einstein. It, it's beyond Einstein yeah. because I, I would argue it's, it's, it's surpassed Einstein in a lot of ways because Einstein could only think within his... Within the scientific means of provability and like and look what And oh. look what we have now. And, the, and you know, I, I even talked to Lex about this and I asked him about um, Neuralink and things like that and what he's working on with him and... He just talks so nonchalantly about it. Like, it's it's just like, this is great. It's inevitable. Like, this is what's going to happen. It's, and I get it's inevitable. But Jesus, I even said to him, I was like, can you make sure things are compassionate? These robots are compassionate oh. because, and he goes, no, my robots, that makes my robots angry. Vulnerable. He, yeah. No, but he, no, he says it makes my robots angry that you think that they're not compassionate. Like, like I remember Lex <laughs> saying to me that, like, of course, they're comp- you want them to be compassionate because when you lose compassion in humanity, then what really what separates us from the apes? Well, isn't isn't a large part of the reason for development of like AI and all that stuff is to lose the emotional vulnerability in decision making process, which is our biggest flaw? I agree. I agree that that's a necessary thing if you're going to um, de- be dealing with things like cybersecurity and really protecting the borders. Like I, I understand that there needs to be a lack of compassion in order to to get the job done. I I, I don't necessarily think that's the right thing though. No, I mean, I'm completely fine without AI. If I can fucking order my meal and have it done without some fucking chauncey-ass $15 an hour cocksucker behind there bitching and waving the flag <laughs> about $15 an hour, I'm all about AI ordering a burger. Right. But, like, do I want it to fly my planes? No. Do I want it to be the, the thing that I interact with on a daily basis? No. Like, I mean, we've already, well, I've acknowledged that social media is a huge detriment to us, even though we have the world and information at our fingertips, but it is also going to be the death of us. Nikki and I are going to have a fight. Um, And I agree with you. I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that these, the robots that, that uh, Elon has come up with that new one that he spoke of, that, that humanoid looking silver and black, no face, weird thing that's going to carry my groceries like that thing concerns me well would you rather be hot no i would rather not have them at all frankly yeah they they, they terrify me they terrify me just from the 
the sense of losing humanity. I, I think with Neuralink, we're going to see already like the, what I think Elon said that we're going to lose the ability. We won't need to have the ability to have communication via, via our voices. It'll be um, telepathy and we'll be able to communicate that way. And, and look, I think there's value in that. I do. I don't. But I think, no, I think there could be, I think there's abstract value in that. I think if, if you, if you were to put it into the right application, I think there's value in that in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think it terrifies me on a much grander scale. So that's a problem, right? It's like the right application, which means someone needs to have ownership and the level to discern who is granted this, this engineering capability, right? Which is completely going against American freedoms. We should have freedom to fucking all of the information and like so on and so forth. But like, it doesn't mean it's going to be used for good. And right. Facebook was started actually probably with ill intentions. And then you think so? I mean, if we want to look back on it and, you know, it's pretty well public by now, I, I, I mean, fuck, look at Zuckerberg back in the day. He was just doing it to like blow up sororities and, and fraternities and shit, but still create like a networking, uh, web interface. But this is somebody that wasn't fucking networking whatsoever. He was, you know, a, a super smart nerd that wasn't networking with anybody. So he didn't actually need the program that he was creating. He was doing it as a troll. And then he found the influence during the heyday of, you know, creating the internet, Napster, and, and all these social networking channels. And then for a while there, to be honest, I think it was good. You know, I was able to communicate with my family across, you know, overseas. I was able to talk to friends that I haven't seen in forever. And then it turned. And it turned once children grew up with that as an option, you know, I, and you're 34, I'm 35. Well, I'm 34. I am 32. Get your shit together. Well, I How... have my own fucking age, Ron. So we're all Wow. Right. Apparently <laughs> I look 34, but I'm really 32. So that makes sense. Only because it's midnight. Did you have a cassette player? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. All right. Okay. All right. I had a cassette player and then I had the, yeah, like the Walkman and then the Discman. Do you remember when the oh, Discman yeah. came out? Anti-skip. Yeah, I was just, bro, I was just going to say the skip stuff. Yeah, that was that was revolutionary. That was key because when you were running with the Discman, you needed to be able to listen to the Eminem yeah. 8 Mile album without it skipping every time he said a curse word. Right, and then, so that was it. Is We grew up in an age to where we had to remember how to get to a friend's house. We had to remember their phone numbers. And we oh, had to actually numbers. make plans and it wasn't via cell phone. It wasn't via social media and you were still held accountable for running your fucking mouth and you would get punched if, if it warranted it. Then we go into this cyber age. And so, you know, we're, our generation is at this pinnacle of knowing what it's like before and knowing what it's like now. The generation that's growing up only with Facebook and MySpace and TikTok have a completely jaded perspective of like what the real world's like. And that is our detriment. Yeah, it is. I think it's a detriment. I, I, I do argue that there is a component that is beneficial. And I think, you know, there are certain platforms I use specifically for certain tools. So, for example, Instagram is very much a business-based thing for me. Um, Facebook is really, I have to have in order to have an Instagram business. But for me, I found I've used it predominantly to keep in touch with individuals that I deployed with or deployed near. And it's almost like this time capsule in which people can check on each other, even if I'm not on there. Right. It's like, I, they know that there's a communication tool there that they can use to get to me if necessary. And so I think, I think initially maybe Facebook was 
was built out of malice, turned into something good for a little while. Then we kind of didn't really realize, you know, what social media would do to a younger generation and the detriment in which it would have on and mental health. And there's a document, is it, there's a documentary on Netflix. Uh, it was like the social, Experiment. yeah, the social, is that the one where they did, um, it's the recent one, right? And mm-hmm. it talks about, yeah. So that was a really fantastic documentary. And I, what I liked about it is they did such a great job in, in making it watchable. So they didn't make it a strictly regular documentary. They really, they used, um, they used scripted movie, if you will, and coupled it in with real psychological research and proof around social media causing damage to our younger generation because we don't realize, we didn't really realize until it's too late that it's causing us damage. Like, because we, 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 we didn't have it. We were kind of the guinea pigs, you know, that came into it. And now we know better. It's like, we know better. So it's how do we do better? But yet we're not doing any better, right? We're just continuing to perpetuate the same cycle. So when you see social media, it's, I have a mix, mixed feelings about it. I think there is positives, but I also think there's a large outweighing negative with it. I would be absolutely fucking nowhere if it wasn't for social media. Absolutely nowhere. My whimsical fucking Instagram to where I used to go from posting photos of my cheeseburger to my (laughs) wall. But never once have I ever allowed it to pollute my mind with toxic accounts, with bad thoughts, bad feelings. I've always ever just followed shit that I actually want to see. If I want to see fucking kittens doing backflips on a bouncy ball, I'm down. Or if it's spearfishing, photography, you know, shooting, whatever it is. But I can absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, say that the connections that I've made via Instagram has propelled my career and my success, like, to new heights. And it's because I don't get wrapped up in drama. I don't get consumed by shitty comments. And I don't follow things that make me unhappy. I don't need to I don't need an Instagram post to make me feel conviction that killing animals is bad, right? So therefore, I don't need to follow some fucking PETA account. Right. Because I already know that this is happening. I don't need to be reminded every day. It's cuz you don't live in a bubble though. A lot of these a lot of people I find that that use social media, you know, if they're everyday people, you know, working the 9 to 5, they're kind of living that life. I find like social media is the highlight. Like that's where they find they gossip and they learn things and they talk to people. Like that is a different thing than what we use it for. I think you and I use Instagram at least as a tool, as a business tool, as a way to communicate with people we might not have had access to otherwise because it leaves an open door platform with a direct message. I mean, I was DMing with Yeonmi. How do you say her name? Yeonmi Park. Oh, the, the North Korean. Yeah, yeah. I was DMing with her the other day. When else would I ever have had the opportunity? Like, dude, that's what I'm saying is like every most of the people that I've ever had on our show has been me taking a chance and just sending a DM. And at what point would I ever have had that opportunity prior? Never. Because yeah, what am I going to look her up in the fucking yellow pages? Yeah, that's what they used to do, though. I don't know if you know about this. You used to be able to like get this book and it would be like you could write letters to like celebrities and they would go to the publicist or whatever and then they would send them to them. Like, I remember this very vividly. I think. Who did I like? You could write. I actually remember that. I haven't thought about this in probably twenty five years. But, but you know I what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I remember that. And so, can you imagine doing that for every time somebody you wanted to work with or have on a podcast or have a conversation with? You're gonna go through seven people to do it. Now you would never get there. at the max two. You got the social media manager and then the client. 
Most of the time, it's still the client. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of the clients, they enjoy, they enjoy like being on social media. Like I know, for example, um, I got, like Lex was a fluke. I put a story on Instagram and he saw it. There was no rhyme or reason for anybody to see it. I messaged, I even messaged the Black Rifle guys on Instagram. That's a fluke. Yeah, we run in the same communities, and I'm sure once they kind of connect to the dots, says, oh, this person knows so-and-so and knows so-and-so. Like, yeah, there's an aspect of that. Don't get me wrong. So that's part of the process, right? It's like it looks, who are your mutual followers? Because right. that's the vetting process. It's already conducted for you. Right. Like, you're skipping past the handshake and the bullshit and right. the fucking dinner and the drinks and the sit-down, and you're just like, okay, all right, I look at this. I see your engagement. All right, who's following you? Okay, all right. Yep. Vetted. Literally, I'll that's how. To you. Yeah, and then they they choose to respond or they don't. And my my the worst one is is when they respond. They you can see they've seen it. And they yeah, don't, and they don't respond. Left on left on. Right. Oh my god, that gets me. God, that happened. That that I hate that. I don't know why I hate that so much. I don't know if I hate it because like I know you read it and you didn't respond and there's no I, there's nothing else I can do about it. So that drives me up the wall. Logan left me on red. What? Yeah. Oh, PB, you got called out. <laughs> I'm going to have to tell you about this. You got called out. I don't, I don't blame my leave a lot of people on, on red too, <laughs> but it's, it's not out of malice. It's out of lack of time to generate a warranted response. Have you ever, do you, do you have a habit of texting people and then forgetting to hit send? Oh yeah. Oh, that, I'm queen like of a that. Full on paragraph. Oh sent yeah. In there, and then I look back on it and it was sent two weeks ago and I'm like, ah, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a, the living embodiment of a nightmare when it comes to a friendship. Because I get anxiety seeing like unread text messages on my phone. Uh, so I'll go through them all and then I'll be like, you're going to text this person back. And then, and then days you, go by and I forget to text that person back. And then you're like, and then I went about my life. And so I've, be, I've made it like a before bed habit to go through all my text messages for probably like the last like week to see if there was anyone that I left unresponded to. That's like to the, make up for it. But then they get a text message at like two in the morning after I'm done editing shit. I was going to say like, that's the worst time at night for you to be doing that. Yeah. But you know what? Fucking Jocko post photos at 4am. At least I can do it at three, four 30. Yeah. Okay, don't give him earlier hours than he already needs. You know, I'm trying to figure out, like, <laughs> who's warranted more of the creative? Like, the guy that stays up till 4.30 or the guy that wakes up at 4.30? So I'm going to go with the guy that stays up. <laughs> That's why we're friends. I'm going to go hard <laughs> with the guy that stays up. Let me tell you why. Because I've been the guy that stays up and then had to function after that for the day. And that's a different kind of conversation, my friend. That's just a different conversation. That's a different person. I, I was, I, especially for me, my level of productivity once the sun goes down is a hundred times more productive than it is during the day. You're a true of, creative. That's why. Well, there's no text messages coming through. There's no emails coming through. There's no Slack messages coming through. There's no DMs coming through. No distractions. Through. There's no distractions. It's just me and nothing is time sensitive because I know that everyone's sleeping. So now I'm like, I can fucking crush all these things that I need to crush and then... Fucking go to bed, wake up in four hours, and re- rinse and repeat. So you know that now that will be the hours in which I text you only. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and I've I've tried to explain it to Nikki too, and, and I don't know that it was always like this, but for a very very large part of my career, like missions started once the sun went down. Right. Well, you know, it was dinner, sense. it was briefs, and then you're fired up and you're getting ready to go, and so I. I'm sure that there's a study that's probably been conducted, but after years of doing that, hundreds and thousands of times, not a hundred thousand, but probably hundreds or thousands, um, you just become used to it. And like, that's when your brain turns on and like once dinner's done and you know, 
like I'm there, I'm like, all right, like I just get like the itch and I'm like, I'm going to go edit. And then like, I don't stop editing because I'm not fucking bothered. And then I turn the computer off at three thirty, four, five 4 or 5 in the morning. And then I wake up at 9 and fucking do it all over again. And it, it, I'm not saying it's fucking healthy and it sure as shit isn't fun waking up after four hours of sleep, but it's productive. And, and it works. Oh my gosh. I love that you were able to do that though. There's so many, there's so few people that understand that grind and why it needs to be done and how it, and how it has to be done that way. Because there is a, there's a, a different way to look at creativity. You know, I've spoken about this before. I don't quite understand the full definition of creativity. I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's so vast. It, right. And for you, you know, when I look at the way that you think and how you work and the time and the time that you work, that says a lot about you to me. That just says that there's old habits die young. Number one, I think you know that you're most effective then because you know that you were able to focus then. And I think there's, there's something to be said about that. Knowing yourself and understanding yourself and knowing that if, if you want to work hard and get things done, that is the time and the sacrifice that is needed. That's the time that you work the best at. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think it's super healthy. Like you said, on a long-term basis, but I think there's a temporary line. And if that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do. But I always wonder about, what that's like to be working at that pace on those types of hours and then functioning throughout the day because you work throughout the day as well. All day. Yeah. I mean, the only time that I ever watch TV is as soon as I like sit down for dinner. So like part of my process is work all throughout the day. Once it comes time, like for dinner, I turn everything off. I smoke a bowl of weed and then I go and cook dinner and like cooking dinner to me is like one of the most like cathartic like processes of my day. I'm like crushing the pickles and pepperonis and like making some meal for Nikki and I, we come in here, we eat, we watch TV, she goes to bed and then I go to the computer and then I come back downstairs when the sun's coming up. Um, and trust me, I'd love for that not to be the fucking case, but if that's what I'm most productive and I've tried to fight it and I've tried to, you know, go to a different schedule, it's, it's not nearly as productive and it's not, it's not, I don't know. It, it fucking is what it is. And, right. And if it's working, then don't change it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't want to No, I, and, and I understand that you don't want to change the, the habits if you know it works, right? Don't change the special sauce. That makes sense. But that's, I get a pee. all right, hold. All right, let's get into that. Let's talk about that. People overthink things. That is like uh, the crux of our society. We, we people overanalyze. I don't know if it's because they're educated that way, trained that way, told to think that way, but they overanalyze everything. Whether it's podcasting, running a business, writing a book, photos. I overanalyze all my photos, all my videos. I mean, everyone always like the saying is, "You are your own worst critic." Right. Um, and I completely believe that. And I am somebody that overanalyzes the fuck out of things because of, you know, my past, my career and, and the necessity of it. However, I also understand that, and I actually read this from uh, a book that said your three foot bubble and you're only able to control and manipulate your three foot bubble. And if, if you genuinely ask yourself, if something's bothering you, can I control this outcome? Like, can I... Did I have an effect on what just happened? And if you can't change it and you couldn't have controlled it, then you can't fucking worry about it because there's nothing, nothing to, 
to change. Like, it's already fucking happened. And so by beating yourself up over a situation that happened that you're not pumped about, it already happened. And so, like, move on, learn the lesson, don't let it happen again, and then continue on. But, like, by the anxiety, and, like, trust me, I get anxiety. I'm fucking always, always got it. But asking yourself, how can I control this and how can I make sure that I'm being as efficient as possible? Okay, so you touched on something and I want to hit it. You have anxiety. What's anxiety look like to you? What is anxiety to you? I Can I just ha- say that I nailed that? So yeah. I'm just going to... Okay, go ahead. I have exponentially put more food on my plate than I can eat. Um hence the start of my own media production company um, and bringing other people in to, to help me with my day-to-day workload. And it's because I think I hate not being busy, but at the same time, I'm completely chasing things that I, I deem worthy. And with that come, I mean, I'm a full-time student, I'm a full-time creative director, and I have multiple clients that, I shoot for on a regular basis, all of them with demands that those clients don't give a fuck about my other demands. They only give a fuck about theirs. So I can't give them excuses. I just have to give them solutions and, and what they want. And so I can't ever use an excuse, which is great. And I learned that from the military. Don't give an excuse. However, it's, it's chasing the money for financial security or it's chasing passion projects that I know I'm going to love doing. Like I could not love my job more. I'm traveling. I'm fast roping out of helicopters and nuclear facilities. I'm going on spearfishing trips. I'm doing any number of things. Like the job does not suck. However, there's no time for myself and there's no time to kind of like decompress but I think that I'm used to that and that's why I do it to myself so do you think that because you're used to it it's still the right thing to do though I mean like I think there's um, a lot of people say that people like us in the military are people that have these things called adrenaline addictions and I always challenge that with I don't know that it's an adrenaline addiction I think it's more of a when everything stops and everything gets really quiet, it's uh those voices get too loud addiction. <laughs> that's what that shit is. Yeah, and that's why for the longest time I couldn't meditate because like if I'm sitting there and I'm trying to either A think about nothing or B think about one thing, fuck no, that's not gonna happen in my brain. Like <laughs> right. you don't want to go in my fucking brain. Right. It, it is it is so fucking many different directions and trajectories that I can't focus on one thing. And that one time that I was able to focus on one thing, you know, when I was finally able to meditate, I was completely blown away about how cathartic that was about being able to focus on somebody or something because there's a reason why I can't sleep. Like when I lay down, I think about everything that I have to do tomorrow. I think about a checklist. I think about gear, shot list, like any number of things. And like, I just can't turn it off at all. What do you do in that instance? Because a lot of people resort to things that maybe aren't the most healthy. And I'm talking about alcohol. I'm talking about, um, you know, shitty eating. They just get into their head. They, they resort to shit behavior, um, reactive behavior, 
trying to get a rise out of someone to be able to feel anything, starting fights, promiscuity, you know, what do you do in those instances, though? It's, I mean, it certainly hasn't fucking always been healthy. And even sometimes now to this day, it's still not. Um, for a long time there, it was drinking to the point to where I was so drunk, I was just going to fucking pass out. And then I realized how unhealthy that was, which is when I first started smoking marijuana. And that was after contracting when I was actually able to after, fuck, I was 30. So 2017, you said, was your last contracting year? Yeah. Yeah. And for a little while there, I held on for a year after because I thought that I was just going to get healed back up and go back to to contracting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't. And I'd smoked weed in high school and shit. And, you know, it was whatever. But then what I found is because my mindset, because of who I was and after the military and contracting, I hated the person that I was when I was high because I felt vulnerable. I didn't feel like I was on my A game. I didn't feel like I was dialed in. I you weren't like sharp. I was foggy, right? So I only smoke right before I went to bed. And that helped to leave a lot of, uh, you know, drinking. And so then after then, it started going from right before bed to a little bit before bed. And then a little bit before, a little bit before bed. And then it started getting earlier and earlier. And then I was like, oh, I can fucking actually do this all the time. All day. However, I mean, still to to this day, I can't now because I definitely lose my vocabulary and and can't eloquently talk to a graphic designer or a post-production guy or anything like that if I'm stuck. So that's always kind of like my end of day cathartic means. Um. And I also think that that's a large part of the reason why I stay up so late. Because if that's when I'm productive and I get it done, I get it done until my eyes fucking go cross-eyed behind the computer. And so, therefore, when I lay my head down, I'm so exhausted that I don't think about anything. I just go right to bed. So, it's it's doing the same thing as marijuana or alcohol or anything would do. It's just now we call it sleep deprivation. So, you're replacing a negative with a semi-positive but has negative results on the body long term whether it does or doesn't like i still feel like i'm i'm able to like catch up on sleep um sleep wise but i'm talking about your eyes let me tell you a quick little side note jaunt you know how mom says don't sit in front of the tv because you go fucking cross-eyed cute story did twice during that situation two and four don't do that to your eyes give them a break are you wearing at least blue light glasses yes Okay, well, I can't argue that fact then. Yeah, next. Okay, well, my point is just look after your eyes. That's eat more carrots, look after your eyes. I still got 2015. Okay, cool. That's. Uh, yeah. Okay, no, all right. Yeah, you're. you're no. I'm, yeah, well, my, I'm just, I'm, I'm concerned about your eyes because. I am too. Okay, well, as long as we know that we're looking after them and we're all aware that you're, I'm concerned about your I eyes. I wanted to get extra nerdy for this. Maybe it might sound more intelligent. I mean, I highly doubt it. There's not much you can do for that. <laughs> you really just tell yourself what you need to. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll believe it either way. But that's interesting, though, because it is it, it can be argued that it's still a really good thing. Like you're working really hard, you're creating things, and that's the way to alleviate your anxiety. But really what it does do replace is, is the drinking. And, you know, there isn't that intake of alcohol, but there's still that intake of, of work. There's still that intake of... Um, not sleeping there's still that you know there's still that breakdown of the body so this is how i justified it right okay. i asked myself is there anything that i'm currently doing that is detrimental to my life right is there anything in my current day-to-day pattern 
that has repercussions? And as it stands right now, the answer is no. So I mean, therefore, I fail to see the answer. Okay, or, fair. Or, or I fail to see the issue. No, and I don't think there is an issue. I just think there is the there is still a an understanding and a replacement of a like a another strategy or coping mechanism that it doesn't necessarily have current repercussions but like you know that breakdown over time right you have to be cognizant of that right that is you have to be aware that like the body can only take so much the body does need a certain level of slit you know what i'm saying like as long as you're looking after otherwise i mean you're fit you work out it's not like you it's not like you don't work out it's not like you eat bullshit food all the time you sit behind a computer like you guys eat really clean you guys are really healthy i mean tonight was a very different conversation but we were you're you're healthy people you you look after yourself otherwise so it's not as near as detrimental as i would think of somebody else who's using it as a coping mechanism and sitting behind a computer for 12 hours a day and then eating mcdonald's and then sitting behind a computer again for another five hours a day so there is that you know the idea that is way more acceptable because of X, Y, and Z, you know, compiled. Um, I do wonder what is the real ultimate goal for you? Because you have so many different things going on and you've got your hands on all these different projects, but ultimately what is the goal for you? What do you see? What do you want? If you could, if you could aspire to something, what would that be? Oh, fuck. I'm mad you asked that question because I think if there's, I ask that question myself to myself consistently often, right? Every year that I look back over the past eight years, if you would have asked me or if you would have told me in January that I was going to be where I was in December for better or worse, I would have told you you're absolutely full of shit absolutely full of shit the way that things have transpired the way that things have fallen in my lap the way that some of my efforts have turned out for better or worse i never would have been able to guess where the fuck i would be in 12 months and so i'm not naive and i'm not jaded but like asking myself that now right i truly feel like being a creative director working with insanely talented people of all disciplines is where I find the most usefulness. I won't say happiness, but usefulness. Like that's where I really feel like I'm, I'm benefiting whatever organization company or brand that I'm working for is that role because I've fulfilled every position within that department. And so I'm able to speak to everybody individually in their own language. I understand what their goals are, what they're striving for of the editor, the graphic designer, the social media manager, the marketing manager, like I know what everyone wants essentially. And then I'm just able to kind of take it all together and funnel it into like, you know, some happy fucking polished project, hopefully. But where I want to go from here is a question that I don't have an answer to. There's, there's bigger brands, right? There's, right. There's Nike, there's Arterix, there's fucking Patagonia. Like, there's other brands that, like, I'm super passionate about. I'm super passionate about golf still. And I've, I've tried to apply it. TaylorMade and Titleist and Callaway and, like, nothing's happening. But I don't want there to be a benchmark on my success. Right. And so I don't want to jump into something as a photographer or a videographer because there's a cap on not only your income but your success level. As a creative director, if I understand that, then where do I go from there? Right? Like, what, like what's the net, what is that CMO? 
you know, like, where do you go from there? I still always want to be involved in polishing a project in creating the sexiest video marketing campaign, photo shoots, whatever for a brand in order to elevate them. However, what I will say is I don't generally fucking like working for people. I mean, I, I love my clients and I love the people that I currently work for, but you know, your success is still directly tied to somebody else. And it's not a bad thing. I mean, that's a large majority of the world in the workforce. And I did the whole independent, you know, photographer, videographer, consulting thing for the longest time. Fucking loved it. But where am I going to grow from there? I can only take on so many clients. Right. Yeah. You're you're one person. It's like, uh, it's like RMTs who work for themselves or, um, hairstylists who work for themselves it, there's a cap on what you can do as one person and you know you have to have a team you have to be able to delegate you got to be able to spread that out but if you're the one that's like the magic the rainmaker the person that does all that you, I mean that's that's really difficult the only thing you can do is climb the ladder become more and more known be worth more and more money and and have your photos be a different thing right you work for one of those companies and like your photos go from being worth x to you know whatever else the the going rate is. And like, so you, you give yourself a stepping stone and really people, people will pay. I mean, didn't like people were paying $10 million for a fucking elephant to throw around a paintbrush for a little while. Didn't Biden's son. Yes. Like spent somebody like something about like half a million dollars on a painting. His average paintings are going for $600,000 and this is Hunter Biden. Okay. So, but this is my point is so people will pay, whatever i just have to die first or I have to do something completely fucking mental well i listen i think dying is we don't need to go that route <clears throat> i think i would like you to be around to see the success i think that's a marketing campaign i think you make you make the right people think that you're what you want like in the art community all you need to do it seems like is be in the right circles with the right people and have them say some nice things about you and that's all it takes. Like word of mouth is everything. Like you say, credibility is everything. Networking is fucking everything. And a lot of these guys getting out have too much pride to shake a hand, introduce themselves right. and just be genuine. Do you know what? I was sorry not to interrupt, but one of the things I get all the time is like, you're having another fucking Navy SEAL on your show. Yeah. Maybe I want to talk to another fucking Navy SEAL. Like who the fuck cares? I'm friends with a ton of them. I get it. They're fucking insanely interesting people. Like, they're no... Why Why? Why not, is there a stigma? Well, uh, well, I mean, but, I know they created part of it, and some of them did, but, like, yeah. one bad apple is not the whole tree. But that's what I'm saying is, right, like, people are like, well, they're all the same. It's like, nah, I, I, think, I think that's where... I think people, all, a lot of the shows are the same, but I don't think people are the same. I think if you give people a space to talk about things that they don't talk about, I think they're, they're very, very vastly different. <laughs> and... I, it's really interesting to me when you hear people's perspective on individuals like that. It's like there's, there's nothing wrong with having conversations within a community. That's what I was going to bring up to you though, that I was curious about. Um, your, your photos have kind of been kind of everywhere and your writing has been everywhere and you've worked for some major companies, Oakley included, and you've really, you've, I would say pay your, paid your dues in, in, in a big way. So where, if you could pick one place, I mean like one, and I'm not saying, don't give me like this bullshit answer of like, there's no way I could pick one. 
You could pick one. One place. What would it be? One brand to work for? Just one. Fuck. Yeah, I'll give you a second to think about that. I see your face. Let it stress. Because you need it. That's a good... Because here's why I'm asking that. If you could pick one, and then my next question to you is going to be the one company, and then what would one of your photos for that company go for? All right, let, let, let's talk about the, the reality of the question. Right, so the first one is like, which, which is one brand that I'd want to work for? And I've given this a lot of thought. Um, one of the ones that originally kind of came top of mind at first because I saw the position open on LinkedIn was Nike. Right? Okay. I thought about that. Now, I thought about that enough to figure out that it's actually not a brand that I want to work for. And this might come off in any fucking bad way, but what I've realized is... I don't have to work for one brand. Like I work for multiple brands right now on retainers and different kinds of contracts. And that to me, like honestly, my position as it stands right now is like one of the happiest positions I think that I could ever find myself in. And I've asked myself if I could change it, how would I change it? And I don't have the answer. And I think that that's a good thing because it means I'm satisfied currently. And so it means my portfolio is always diverse. It means all the photo shoots that I'm doing are completely different. It means I'm working from pe- or with people from all walks of life. Like there doesn't have to be a construct to how a photographer or videographer or creative operates. And I've fucking been so fortunate to find a niche of working with multiple brands and collecting a good income and not having to pick one. Like, that's the best fucking part about being in your 30s. Like, you can have Cheerios and fucking tricks if you wanted to. <laughs> like, you can even put them in the same fucking bowl. I'm going to have a cookie before bed. Fuck Goddamn you. I can right. do what that's I want. What I'm like, two bags of popcorn, I'm in. Best part of being 30, I don't have to ask permission. That's right. And so... Why were you asking permission in 20s as well? Can we ask that question? Well, you never met my ex-wife. Okay, well, that's a different... That's that's in the whole other podcast we'll get into, I guess. I'm sorry <laughs> no, for your no, 20s. Good. I'm sorry for your loss of your 20s. <sighs> yeah. It's rough. But... No, there isn't one brand. There's brands that I aspire to. So actually, one of the brands that I've always used in market research, market analysis, as a brand that needs to be studied and envied is Yeti, right? Yeti. Yeti. Interesting. And Yeti is a cooler company. You know, we all grew up with the fucking igloos, the 7-Eleven bullshit, the little, Mm -hmm. you know, polar bear on the side of it that are just haunts of shit that are going to go to the you know, waste facility and pollute, you know, pollute the earth with all this shit. Right. Not saying the Yeti's not, but what I'm saying is like they reinvented a cooler, a fucking cooler that just keeps beverages cold. First of all, I don't need a $60 koozie to keep my beverage cold because I'm going to drink it far faster than it's ever going to get warm. But they've created such a brand identity and such loyalty behind a fucking cooler company to where now you're seeing $70,000 fucking Raptors with a Yeti sticker on the back. I know. And their marketing collateral on YouTube is insane. Like one of my favorite pro skaters. They did a whole like 15 minute video on him for a cooler company. Who's that? Uh, Jeff Rowley. Okay. Um, the, the guy's a legend. He's also now pro skater turned kind of like I love to hunt. And they did a whole biopic on Jeff Rowley. They're following Kimmy Swimmy, who's this female freediver. They're following all these people and they're telling all these six stories because they're not trying to sell the cooler. They're trying to sell the lifestyle that revolves around this. 
and their marketing team is fucking brilliant mm -hmm. to turn that around and make people feel like this cooler is actually worth $350. When you could go to 7-Eleven, is it that critical that you have to invest $350 to make your fucking beers cold? No, but they've done it. And that's genius to me. They've done it with not only coolers. They've done it with um, they've done it with mugs. They've done it with uh, a dog bowl. You think I give a fuck if my dog's water is cold? No, no. But yet he does, yeah, and that's exactly. what matters. And, and yet you he tells live, you what you want to hear. Yeah, you want to live that lifestyle. You want to yeah. live that Yeti lifestyle, and that's the fact of the matter is that Yeti has been effective and efficient at their marketing, and they're brilliant. And it, it it like you said, it's a lifestyle. It's a community. They tagged and targeted a community, which is that outdoors free living and they nailed the hell out of it so yeah i could totally see that and if you get you know, a large like if you look at it from you know a three thousand foot perspective you have other brands like coca-cola and pepsi and shit right like whatever consumables but if you look at the other brands that have successfully done it yeti being one black rifle is another they make coffee right. a consumable good but they also exemplify a culture right they have a brand statement. They stand behind something. They mean something. So by purchasing Black Rifle Coffee, now validate, validates you to be in a tribe, to be in a certain sect in, in the human populace of this is what I stand for, this is what I believe in, and I'm going to support this. Right. And then let's not mention you know the apparel, which is exponentially more. So they've also done that. You know how many other fucking places make coffee? You know how many other places you can get for for cheap? But it's about the brand. And that is always something that I've told other brands that I've worked for is you don't need to sell them your product. You need to sell them you. Right. Like, what do you stand for? What are your values? And if that is the same as what my customer base is, then you're on the right track. Like, you don't need to sell them a fucking bag of coffee, a necklace, or a cooler. You need to sell them, like, who you are. And the successful brands have done that. And the unsuccessful brands are the brands that don't do that. Oh, I want to make watches. Okay, well, what makes your watches special? Well, I don't know. I just want to make them fucking fail. Right. And you're going to fail. It has to be an identity. It has to be a lifestyle. It has to be like a cult crew. Mm -hmm. Well, things like Yeti and Black Rifle kind of go together in hand in hand, right? They're that outdoor living. And Black Rifle does a really great job with their marketing in terms of their on-the-go, out-camping kind of kits and the way that they do everything. They really they think outside the box. They do good on their marketing in terms of um, the similarities with Yeti, which is you're, you're marketing a lifestyle, which is a hunting lifestyle. It's a free living lifestyle. It's many say a little more right wing than more right. I'm sorry. That's fucking good. Yeah. And that's like, that's not even my words. That's just like the New York times. Yeah. So like, you know what I mean? So they've done a great job of creating this community and this brand identity. And it's obvious. And I don't know if you've been in a black rifle uh, coffee shop, but I love that like the one I was in was across the street from Starbucks and it is it was arguably one one of the more welcoming places I'd been in. Like there's this they have these couple long tables in the one and I had never seen so many vets just kind of like mingling and seeing somebody recognize somebody's pin on their hat and just walk over and be like, hey, buddy, like I, it blew my mind. I never witnessed that before. And they've got like leather couches that are legitimately like. I could sleep in this and instead just... of like a workspace and a yes. communal place to where like you're not going to be fucking judged and asked to buy a coffee every hour like you would at every other coffee shop. It just shocked me. I'd never I'd never been in one until recently. I was really excited to to get to witness that, but to actually get to witness that on an, and just see that normally, just that like that's that's a beautiful thing that is so much missing. It, it we're missing that in Canada in a way that I can't really describe to you. 
We don't have that for our vets. Community, we, we this kind of goes back to our conversations of lack of community. We don't have that. They're, they have little pockets, but it's not like the United States. I mean, what, we have 20 million veterans after uh, GWAT? I mean, I think oh, that you're man. probably exponentially less. Oh, God, yeah. I wouldn't even, I, I don't know the number, but it would be, I'd, oh. That's I, a rough number. Don't hold I can't even, yeah, I can't even, I can't even give you a reference point for Canada, but there's no way it's even fucking remotely close. No. And so like, I get it. Right. Because even guys still to this day in the States, and we talked about earlier, like still having a hard time trying to find their tribe. Right. They're having a hard time trying to find this organization or this, this group, because like that culture is a culture through thick and thin. The humor is different. Um, oh I mean, yeah, vet TV being a prime example. You know, like we just find different shit funny. We talk different. We're more vulgar. We're more honest, um, and sometimes to our detriment. You know, I'm not saying it's right, but like you also don't need to be judged or like looking over your shoulder. And if there's other things out there, especially a coffee shop with free Wi-Fi that can provide that, then fuck yeah, people are gonna go there. And it like was legitimately nicer. Like the, I like the outside. I like the color scheme better. It's more my feel. I like the wood deal. Like I aesthetically, I, I enjoyed it a lot more, honestly. Like it just felt less cold and it felt less callous and like get in and get out. If it kind of made me want, like I went back, I yeah. went back. And I give, I give JT and Matt and Evan and I mean, all the other guys, their credit. Um, you know, I've, I've known those guys for years back in the article 15 days and even pre article 15 days. And I think a large part of their success is their level of transparency with the ownership and the management, right? We're still seeing Matt in videos. We're still seeing Jared. We're still seeing Evan. It's not this holier than now. Let me now remove myself from, you know, the bottom tiers of the companies because, you know, now I'm, I'm corporate exec. Right. They've always kept transparency and lived what they're selling. And, that is what people are fucking buying into. It's, I mean, you can send a message and a memo all day. Like, Hey, this is our PSA. It doesn't fucking matter. But if it comes from the CEO, you better believe it does because we're so used to being lied to. And we're so used to, uh, just fucking false perceptions from people that we value. Okay. Whether it be celebrities or politicians that now when it comes down to a grass bones company, they're into it. So, yeah, no, and I can understand that. I mean, I, like I said, when I was down there, you, they live it. They live exactly what they say they live. It's hilarious. It's, they go so hard. They go so hard in the paint. My God. I, I, I really didn't think a rally car could make it up, up that ranch road. I, I was concerned. I was highly concerned. We, we lost a bumper. We, we, we did some stuff. There was a bumper that was lost. It was, I wasn't driving. It was not my fault. Yeah, I think uh, Pastrana has almost had way too much influence in uh, some of the things that we're doing. Uh, so when I was at Pastrana's house, we were doing uh, a Nitro Circus event. JT showed up and everyone's getting their teams together and building this up. And we're doing a walkthrough of the course. And this course is like it was built last night. And it was built to such a level that these pro motocross racers are like, looking at it and I'm like fuck like that's sketchy and I could just like see it in their face from like my skating and like snowboarding days like I know that looked where like like this is going to take some gonads to try to like yeah someone's going to have to go and if these guys are knocking this out all the time I'm like god like god help you 
And I mean, you're, you, if you go to Pastrana's house or Pastrana land, you're signing over your life. You are. But I mean, he also has 10 year olds there that just murder, including his own kids. Murder. I mean, Jolene, like all of those are just so talented. And then you have a four year old show you up on the double whoop. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I got this. And then you just case it. Next thing you know, like you had a broken leg. Yeah. All right, hey, we'll just ship you off to the hospital. They, they know where you need to come back to. Yeah, they know exactly. I wonder how many ambulance trips <laughs> have been to Pastrana land. I should have asked him that when he was on the show. That should have been a question. Why didn't I ask that? I know. I bet you he doesn't even have the count, to be honest. No, I mean, at this point, I don't, I don't think that he could. I mean, how you would, you would, you're not there for them all, so maybe you would just miss out. But either way, I still think that would be... It's just an absolute astronomical number if you really break it down. I know I saw he did, um, he was backflipping on his dirt bike with his daughters recently. Yeah, right? Yeah, That's for the nuts. first time. He's like, I'm just going to put her on the front. She's going to hang on to the bars. We're going to do this. And she's like, I'm down. Let's go. They jump. They've got their own, like, um, what are those called? Uh, pit bikes. No, no, they're not pit bikes. No, 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 no. They're like uh, the double seater. Oh, my God. What the fuck are those things called? They rip through the woods on them, though. They're not the rally cars. I don't remember what they're called anyway for the life of me. Oh, the razors? The side-by-sides? Yeah, it's side-by-sides. That's what it was for the life of me. I couldn't remember that. But yeah, side-by-sides. You ever see them rip on the side-by-sides? Just the daughters driving? No. It's, 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 it's hilarious. Remember when I was talking about whole PTSD from downrange and anxiety and all that shit? It's, I've been in so many vehicle accidents, and especially side-by-sides, like uh. even on an Oakley set. And rolled over, and it's it's so not good that if I'm not driving one, mm-hmm. I'm the only guy with a frown inside one of those things. <laughs> the only guy. I'm just like me mugging the whole time, not having a good time, just sweat my ass off. I don't know, man. After I uh, when JT took me ripping there, I was like, I'm fine. Like I was, I literally got out of the car and I called Tally and I was like. You're like this shouldn't shouldn't be happening. We're going 90 miles an hour, going over whoops and jumps, and like I'm I'm not okay with this. No, there's no okay with any of it. It's it happens. We just we tough it out. You hang out with those people. I guess you just it's par for the course, I suppose. I mean, you you have to admire it. It was kind of like back in the skating days where you see someone flex and like you know, have some gonads, big dick energy. And like, you kind of want to match it. Like it pushes. Big dick energy. <laughs> you need a shirt. I need to make you a shirt that says big dick energy. No, I would never wear it. I'd put it on my dog, but I mean, she's beautiful. Yeah. But she's a girl. I guess it would be even funnier than if we did that. that. That's why I support this decision. Yeah. yeah, exactly. My point is, is yeah, you, you take your life in your hands when you go do those things and you hang around those people. It's kind of that it's, you know what I've realized is like people that go really, really hard. And I don't think this, you know, is any shock to anyone. But people that go really hard in, in business often go really hard in life. They're, no, that's a fact. No, this is, this is a true fact. Yeah, that's a fact. I mean, I've, I've worked for enough celebrities on the back end doing personal security to see that the work hard, play hard is absolutely exemplified with them. Like, same thing. Three, four hours of sleep a night. Uh, waking up in the morning. Adderall with your coffee meetings phone calls all the things rinse and repeat over and over and over not saying it's healthy not saying it's right but like it is a thing and i feel like there's there's a certain amount of years that you need to do that in order to to get to where you want to be but then after that then you can kind of turn down the volume do you think it's almost necessary to go through that 
unless you're handed fucking a lot of gifts and a lot of luck, yeah, I think that that level of of desire to to work to stay up the late hours to lose the sleep is absolutely necessary to find success. If I didn't, if I didn't stay up for 18, 19 hours out of the day, I, I would burn a lot of bridges, fail a lot of clients and, and no one would want to work with me again. How long do you think you can sustain that? Uh, I don't fucking know. Uh, long enough. Fair. Okay. Long enough. All right. Take I, I have, I have a cap on it. I have like probably another five or six years in me to kind of get to where I want to get, get a house, get mm-hmm. everything kind of dialed in, get the plans figured out. And then, and then I'll, I'll pump the brakes quite a bit and just kind of do what I want to do. Okay. I guess I'm smirking. Why? Because you don't fucking believe me. Uh, well, I think I think that's well intent. I think there's intention there, and I think it's 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 well thought out. But I think you're an ambitious person, and I'm curious to see in five years where you're going to be. I guess the question is, where does a photographer or a videographer or a creative director go? Like, like what's the next step from there? Well, I guess it depends on what you really want for your art, right? Well, what do you want? I don't want it to become too corporate, right? Just like I never wanted to be a lieutenant in the military because like, I don't want to have to worry about running a company. I would rather hire people to do that. I still always want to stay in the creative process. I don't right. want to get too big for my britches and then just sit there and point at it. Like, no, I actually want to take the photos too. I could totally see like the photo I'm looking at right now. I can see like I could see a gallery like you're 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 you know what I mean? Like you really want to do that, by the way. Oh, OK. Well, that's like big ass blown up photos. That's what I'm talking about. Like that one that's right there. Like I love that. That's one of my favorite photos you've ever done. And it's 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 beautiful, frankly. And and it's the way you blew it up there. That's my point is like I could see that. So you're like, where else could I go? Well, you could go into art. Your stuff is legit enough to do that. And I think if you blow it up and you, you, you frame it right. Like, and you, you market it right. And you exactly. And you, you build around that, like that identity around who you are. You'll next thing you know, you'll be that guy in New York. Who's like the really dark wearing all black. And he's like, I was a sniper. And they're like, his art sells for like $670,000. Have you ever seen some of his photos? He even signs them in blood, (laughs) but that's my point. And then he puts a soul into each photo. The thing is, you, I mean, you could go so many different directions with what you do. So that's why I always wonder when people are like, yeah, I'm going to like do this, this, and this. And then I'm going to like take a break. I'm like, what? I was like, I am going to have a baby and be a stay-at-home mom. Hi, I'm right here right now. I do this now too. <laughs> <laughs> so like my point is like there's just certain people that have ambition. It's And it, that's a certain type of person. And you're just kind of that type of person. So I'm like hopeful that you'll do what you say. But I also am like, mm, okay. I mean, so part of part of my solution, right, is I never bitch about a problem unless I have a solution for it. So part of my solution to my current problem is there is too many jobs, too many clients coming through that I couldn't manage. But I didn't want to forego the opportunity of building a relationship with that client. I didn't want to forego the opportunity of the money um, or anything that would come of it. And so I was wearing myself thin. And so luckily in the photographer nectar collector world you, like we're not bitter against one another and it's not very competitive at least from what i've experienced and so what i decided to do is turn my old clothing company crypto into an llc as a media production company 
I have guys that are insanely talented working for multi-million dollar artists doing VFX. I got people that are doing lights. I got people that are doing webs, paid ad, uh, photography, videography, all this shit. And they're all still hungry for work and chomping at the bit. So if I'm afforded this opportunity of having too many clients, then what if I just piecemeal it out to them? I let them set their day rate. I take my cut off the top and that's my fucking company right so i'm still i still have my name on it and i'm still overseeing the work and i don't have to turn anyone down and my friends are fucking employed and making money and right. so that was my that was my best option so that, that's a brilliant option that's an option that helps a lot of people that's an option that gives people something that they might not have had because they are coming from a similar community and a similar background, right? Like, it's like you, you didn't, like you said, who's going to hire me? I was a sniper. It's like, but you're opening the door to those people and giving that opportunity. And that's a big deal. And so if that is the route that you find the most fulfilling, then that's the route you should be taking. Right. And, and I've never questioned that. Um, I've never felt like I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like the people I was working with. I didn't like some things. Sure. But what actually ended up happening is when I was contracting, I ended up getting my elbow closed in uh, one of the up armored BMW doors that we're using for a principal. Right. So I had a physical fitness test coming up that you have to take mandated by the company. If you fail this physical fitness test, there's no round two. They literally just ask you a question, which goes back to the Eric's, Eric Prince days window or aisle. Like, how would you like to go home? And you're not coming back. Therefore, you're fucked again. So I knew this is coming up. So I went to the facility and they're like, yeah, no, like your shit's wrecked. So they sent me home and they were paying me disability and tax free. And they were paying me a good amount of disability because I was making a good amount of contracting. And so I was doing that, making money and I was just bored as fuck. And so my mentor, Jonathan Wegner, um, Jonathan is the co-founder of LifeProof Phone Cases, uh, an insanely talented designer and one of the people that I randomly messaged and dm'd on instagram and we ended up linking up hanging out and now we're best friends he asked me if i wanted to get hired on and run social media for a 3d printing manufacturer based here in san diego i know fuck all about social media management <laughs> i don't know anything about 3d printers and he's like don't worry about it i'll teach you i was like okay i guess sure and that was my fucking foot in the door. That was my first opportunity to step into a marketing department. I was doing social media management, but then I'd look at my calendar every morning and I had to be in package design meetings. I had to be in ad concept development meetings, meetings that I had no business being in whatsoever. I knew it, he knew it, but what he wanted from me is to sit in there and learn. And he knew that I was gonna learn because I was nervous and I've never failed anything in my life other than a drug test in a marriage. <laughs> so, like, I wasn't going to let him down because I, I understood the opportunity that he gave oh, me. Gosh. So I took it all in and I loved every bit of it. I love the package design. I love creating the ad concepts for Black Friday and marketing campaigns and all this shit. And then I also realized that, like, nobody really does much good with the 3D printer unless you're either prototyping shit or making dildos for your fucking weird girlfriend. Or... There's schematics to make one of those little guns, isn't there? Single fire. Yeah, but... 
Sure. I'm just saying there's a lot of things you can do besides dildos with 3D printers. There is, but if we're talking UGC, which is user-generated content, no one's posting that shit. Okay, obviously. You're taking it to right. a different place here. I'm well, just what going. What I'm saying is as a social media person, I, can't, I have nothing to post except for fucking this dude, back to the sweaty hot dogs and pickles, Okay. that has a penis fucking printed off on his, on his computer or on his 3D printer that he waited for for 10 hours. Okay. So I had to pick up a camera and start taking photos. I mean, fair, but I'm just, I'm just stating that we can make more than dildos, but I like that that's where your head went immediately. I just, I like that's where your head went. So I'm gonna... it's, it's because I saw it a lot. If I looked up the hashtags, it was this nerd that had newly printed a new penis. What? How? Okay. That's the enough. That's a dark place. I know it is. And you know how I know this? Let me tell you a quick story that I learned because of you two. Your girlfriend, Nikki, in my brief interaction on FaceTime during Halloween showed me a website that I never realized needed to exist. Wait, which one's this? Nor did I realize that it was a thing that just, like, who takes the time to dress up penises as Donald Trump? Yeah. What? And Batman? And these photos. All right, so these photos go for good money. There is a lot of a lot of purchases. Kim Jong Il. Right. So this guy's selling a photo Obama. of a dick dressed up as Kim Jong Un, and I'm over here sucking dick to pay rent. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, really, I you understand how that's devaluing. <laughs> I, I I can completely. That's why I'm like my brain breaks when I heard about this website, and then I was shown the website in my first interaction with your girlfriend, which was an amazing first impression on all parties. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there was penises on the screen, and it was just the tip and a little bit. But they had suits on. They had. We we all know that Kim Jong Un's short. But there were suits. One looked like Trump, and it had the hair on the tip, and it was very concerning. Having having a quaff over your the head of your penis. I just I don't I just I don't know what America's doing with its time. Well, I mean, we should probably pray for your beavers in the middle of your country. No, <clears throat> we're a nightmare. We're owned by China. We're over. We're done. I mean, so are we. Yeah, but at least you guys are holding on. There's there's parts yeah. of you that are holding on. Yeah. You're holder honors. There's a large part of, of, of the country that's holding on tight. We've given up. Yeah. We've, we've long, we've given up a minute yeah, ago. You, you've relinquished all those things. Yeah, we... If there's anything I learned about dating a Canadian, it's that, that your, your country is not yours. It's not ours. It never has. It, it is it not a democracy. No, not, not, not in recent months, years. Uh, I guess you would even want to say years. Oh, my God, it's been years. Ugh. Why do I even bring it up? I just, well, I don't even want to talk about it. Don't get me going. I'll get into a rant. We don't need a rant. I rant. So, I mean, obviously, my Canadian loves a large majority of this country. What do you think would happen if we mildly dissolved the borders in order to allow free flow travel back and forth? What do you think a large majority of like East Coast and West Coast Canadians would think of the states if they went to the appropriate places, right? I'm not talking Alabama, I'm talking like. New York, San Francisco, fucking Denver, San Diego. Well, New York is basically acting and walking and talking just like on terrible right now. So I've got no, you know, like that's you're, you're basically going to the same spot. I think the people who feel the way I lot myself and, and fr- many of my friends included feel um, 
we we want to go to places in the states that are more free speech. We want to go to places like Texas. We want to go to places like Wyoming and Montana. We want to go to places. Um, San Diego has been great for that. We want to go to places where our rights are respective, are are being respected. Our language is being respected. Our rights of just walking out of a building is being respected. And so, I, I struggle with that because I want, I want. A, Canadians to understand that this is wrong and it feels like there's so little of us that are willing to push back and so when I come down to the states and I go to these places I'm relieved because I see people fighting for their fucking rights to live however they want to live but isn't that usually perceived as as like American propaganda as a Canadian? And I don't think that there's really particularly any better person to speak on it other than Nikki because the when she moved from Toronto in with me, our first trip within the first, I think, four days was going to Pastrana's house and Nitro right. Circus to where she's surrounded by nothing but goddamn freedom, mullets, hillbillies, dip, and backflips. Oh, yeah. So, Nikki, I would love to hear your opinion as a born and bred Canadian coming into America. And yes, you live in San Diego and, and our country is vastly diverse, but I'd love to hear like your overall perception coming from one country to the next. Well, it's been the weirdest time to do a transition like this. During, during COVID, um, as a Canadian, like at the very beginning of COVID, I was, I started off with, you know, following the rules, mask mandates, like listening to all these, these policies that were being put in place. And that's just how I was. And I even told you when I first moved out here, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a little weird. Just, so you know, like I'm fully coming from a place where there's been months of me staying home and not leaving my house and staying even when I had friends over we were six feet apart the entire time and we were wiping down groceries and that's just how it was and I knew that you were living a very different lifestyle and so coming out here and walking into the first few restaurants or like you said going to Pastrana land where not only is everybody full-blown American and wearing their their American little shorts and shirts and mullets and accents and all the other things that were at Pastrana Land, but nobody was um, nobody nobody was afraid or or just listening and following the way that Canadians were. No, and, and the crazy thing, and that was just the beginning. And then the longer I was out here, I was afraid to post things. I was afraid to tell my friends or tell my family how free we were being when it came to everything with COVID. And it was really hard to get past because I know that when I was back home, that's how I was too. And it's not that it's not that they were thinking in any different way. It's just that's how that's all they knew, and that's right. all I knew. And coming out here, I learned a lot from being out here, but my, but my friends and family weren't exposed to that. And so they're still thinking in the mindset that I was in and they don't see how it is here. And so there's this weird disconnect of like, but guys, it's okay. Like we can do this. We can be fine and we can be safe and we can still do day-to-day things without being so restricted and just following the rules the way Canadians know how to do. Um, but there's still this really weird 
issue of communication that I'm having with my friends and family with how they're dealing with things and how I'm dealing with things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's frustrating to watch um, because you do, you do see both uh, sides. You do have, you know, family on both sides. Next year, family in the States. You have your family mm-hmm. in Canada. And so you, you're kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place. And I try to explain this to people who are in Canada who haven't left for two years because they've been afraid to leave. Yeah. You got to leave. Right. Nowhere else is like this. This right. behavior is not acceptable. We are not doing this. Australia is doing this. New Zealand <clears throat> is doing this. Canada is doing this. Does anybody else see a pattern that this is a British monarchy kind of situation? Why is it that Canada's doing it? New Zealand's doing it. Britain's doing it. England's doing it. Yeah, Britain's doing it. Sorry, I meant to say um, New Zealand. Australia's doing it. So there are there's all of these main places that are all under a similar rule and a similar law are the only ones doing it. Why is nobody else doing it? Why is Holland fully open? Why do they not have vax passports? Why are they going to school with no masks? Because they don't have control over their population because their population hasn't relinquished control. Correct. So that's what I'm saying, though. Why aren't people willing to get their head out of the sand? I had two conversations in the airport today, and they both ended the exact same way because people... Do not look at anything. They do not say anything unless it's verbatim from the media. And they they don't go outside of their own bubble to learn. Right. And that's the biggest thing is, and this sounds so crazy, but every time I would go and say something to try to express to my friends or family why I didn't want to get the vaccine originally or how we're okay with going out in public without wearing a mask, they bring up all the stats. They bring up the stats that they're literally just hearing from the news. And then when I try to express, hey, but you can think this way. Or, hey, guys, like, you don't have to just listen to the news. It was such a foreign thing for them. And to be totally honest, I was the same. When I was at home, I only knew it was on the news. I wasn't doing research because I was like, well, that's just what it is. I don't really know any better. And that was naive of me. And that was that's something that I've learned coming to America is that there are so many different sides to everything and you really can create your own opinion. Mm-hmm. There's there's not just the left, the right, and all these things. You literally have to listen to so many different things just to even try to grasp your own opinion. But to us, the right thing to do was to try to have these conversations with my friends and family and they just, it was right over their head. They were like, no, but the numbers, the numbers, the numbers. And I'm like, Guys, you're those aren't the it. numbers. They'll read the <laughs> yeah. rest of the paper. Yeah, and they weren't getting that. Mm-hmm. To them, all they saw was the numbers. And you know what? I've been out here for two years now, on and off. But I've been out here for two whole years, and not a single one of my friends or family has come to visit San Diego. And I'm like, wait a second, guys. Like, <laughs> I know how much you love me. There's no doubt in my mind. But the fact that everybody's so scared to travel internationally and come to visit us in San Diego because of the numbers, yeah. it's so frustrating. It's not frustrating. It's sad. It's sad. And they just don't know. They it's just like don't Stockholm get it. Syndrome level shit. Yes. And I was the same. And it, it kills me to think that I would have been at home doing the same thing. And there's a whole country that's just doing it. But that's how they are. And that's all they know. We're well on our way in the States. We're, we're well on our way to that relinquishing of control. But the only thing that separates the U.S. from the rest of these countries 
is the fact of this country is founded on freedom. Right. We own, don't quote me, I believe over 70% of the entire world's population of guns within our own country. And, and then we just a, sell them all to Saudi Arabia. Uh, people that I know own guns don't want to sell to Saudi Arabia. Maybe our, our own manufacturers. Yes, that's what I mean. But the thing is, is if you poke the bear long enough, and I think it's been long enough, what I don't think is taken into consideration is there's a large majority of people on the sidelines that aren't easily triggered, that aren't taking up a political party, that don't feel the need to riot and burn shit down. They're friends of mine. They're guys like me where it's, I did this. I did this for the country and I've, I love this country, but what is happening is not the same country that I was fighting for. And if you're going to tell me which inalienable rights I do and don't have, there's going to be pushback. And that pushback is you fucking cocksuckers spent a lot of money on me. Yeah. And you don't want to know the repercussions. And I hope and I fucking pray that it doesn't come to that because I've lived such a large majority of my life outside of a bubble that I like my bubble now. I like living on the beach. I like fucking taking photos. I like having this woosaw shit. Mm-hmm. If you fucking step on my dick, it's not going to be fun and it's not going to be nice. And I don't want that bubble popped, but I'm going to fucking hold you accountable. But it's 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 happening. It's happening everywhere. There, it's it's the friends that are the quiet, silent type. Those aren't the ones you want to rock the boat with. No. And like, it's not going to be good. And, <laughs> no. and there's prime examples of it. And one of the prime examples is what fucking, what is it? They call it like September 6th or something. Like whenever they took over the Capitol building, right? Those are a bunch of fucking boom hours that took over the Capitol building in 30 minutes with no violence. Yeah. And that happened in 30 minutes. And this is one of our largest, most prominent government fucking buildings of all time. What do you think is going to happen when you remove Tweedledee and Tweedledum from the equation? And you're getting the retired team guys. You're getting the retired snipers. You're getting the retired recce dudes. That's not going to fucking go well. It's called you're going to learn the hard way. That's going to happen. It's troubling, but it, it just, that's I mean, the reality that's another revolution. But, like, no one wants to see that. Like, that's what we no. tried to prevent was war and violence on our own turf. And the people that are perpetuating and creating this are the same people that signed off on us being down there for 21 years. Right. And now they're the same people creating turmoil, diversity, calling people that are anti-vaxxers domestic terrorists and one of the largest threats to north america like are you fucking kidding me yeah it's it's, it's troubling to see that having election. conversations with the taliban bitching about your fucking kid getting boofed like well, shut the fuck up if it makes you feel any better one of our i think she wasn't the minister of um, defense but she was like the minister of affairs for i'll find out exactly her title but um she stated oh this is right during i think it was either during or right after the afghan pullout she said to the effect, the Taliban are brothers. And this was a Canadian government official. And I wanted to reach through the computer and wring her neck. I was like, our brothers, our brothers, our brothers are buying six-year-old children as wives. Cute, right? Do you know what they do with those six-year-olds? No, because you, you wouldn't be able to handle knowing what they're going to do with those six-year-olds. So don't, don't our brothers us. And then, oops, yeah, I didn't mean to say that. Fuck you. Wrong. Not okay. Not acceptable. You cannot walk that back. I want every woke motherfucker in multiple countries to experience Sharia law for a week. Like real Sharia, real law. Sharia not, law. Not like the movie Sharia law. Like 
Like we're yeah. gonna stone you in the street. Yeah. Or we're gonna fucking gonna, hack you to death. And or I'm gonna, we're gonna back rape your, you. Yeah, I'm gonna buy your daughter. Yeah. I want you to experience Sharia law. I want you to experience if you look the wrong way at a dude. Yeah. You're gonna get burned alive. Alive. Which, been there, done that, saw it. Right. Like it's a real thing. And then like. That's my biggest fucking beef with this. That's why I'm filming or creating this documentary is if you're woke, if you're bitching about BLM, you're bitching about gay rights. Like I, I completely fucking support being a nice, kind human being to absolutely everybody. But the way and the means of being heard that has been happening over the past couple of years is absolutely atrocious, right? And people love making a big deal. All of a sudden now Dr. Seuss's fucking books are banned because they're yep. racist and whatever. Yeah. But now you're watching Afghans fall off a C-17 at 15,000 feet and plummet to the earth. And like you're not worried about this whatsoever. You're not worried about the 21 years and the tens of thousands of lives that were lost over there. Why? Because it doesn't affect you? Because you don't feel like like you want to boast your fucking opinion? Like, that is what pisses me off. Yeah. Like, fuck you, bitch. You're not fucking woke. Right. You're, you're ignorant and you're dumb. Well, yeah. And then they are ignorant. And that's really what it comes down to. I, I was watching something and I was, I was so fucking angry because I was like, why didn't you interject? Like, why would you not? And it was the Taliban because they have the food shortage and everything has gotten so bad. They're, the families have resulted in literally selling their daughters again. Back to this bullshit where we had a moment where we thought, oh, these girls are actually going to have a future. They're going to be able to read. They're going to have a chance. It's like, no, no, no. Nothing. It, We're it going backwards again. All lost. Yeah. Progress. And then the billions of dollars in weapon systems, vehicle inventory, yeah. sensitive items. How do you feel about all of that? I wasn't triggered in the sense of just blind rage and losing my shit. Um, what I will say is prior to, to Kabul and prior to the takeover, I wasn't political ever. I didn't post about it. I didn't talk about it. I remained agnostic towards the politics. I had my own fucking opinions and I voted, of course. But it's not something that I felt needed to be discussed because it only creates diversity as is mm -hmm. evident. When that happened, I became fucking political as shit. Mm -hmm. When that happened, I started becoming way more vocal about it, way more aggressive about the situation at hand. I started deleting, blocking, unfriending people that try to justify it in any capacity that never once spent time over there. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you you heard this on fucking MSNBC and all of a sudden like now you, you feel justified over like what's going on over there and like now you want to do X like now you want to have a conversation about it like I've, I've found myself like feeling insanely violent about what's going on and then watching our commander in chief give his speeches if you want to fucking call him that <laughs> geriatric moments I'm I'm just so ashamed and embarrassed at what this country has become and i don't i don't know another word i'm just fucking embarrassed and yeah. this is a complete recreation like donnie said of vietnam of oh, saigon yeah. and we've made the same fucking mistake twice and if the whole goal was to be over there and eliminate terrorism fucking kill bin laden cool done it did it move on move on next why are we the world's babysitter 
if we're not there to mind you like the China or like the Chinese are, yeah. then what the fuck are we doing there? What value is there in establishing a democracy within your company? The answer is fucking none. Like this is this is actually not like some philosophical question. Right. It's it's the military industrial complex. I was just gonna say it's it's it comes That's down it. to it's that. people in Washington profiting from selling excess amount of ammunition. It's actually something I wouldn't bring up earlier. Yeah. So as a sniper, my bullet to the army probably cost them eight cents. Right. There was multiple occasions where I could have solved the situation comfortably with a couple bullets. And instead, I was told to stand down, and then I had to call in a JDAM. And so instead, we dropped uh, however much a JDAM is, $400,000, $500,000, I don't know. Instead, we decided to drop a JDAM on it because that perception to the growing public is better than a sniper fucking killing a terrorist. Why? Why? Why is that per- better than a sniper killing? I, I I mean, the understand. answer is fucking it's not, but it's perception. And... Also, like, you've buried enough shit, Mr. Government. Like, yeah. why does this ever have to go public? You know how many fucking people are dying over here that never make the news? Why is this not another one? I, like, why, why are you spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a missile to blanketly destroy a compound when I've already figured out I'm the human, right? I'm the human intelligence. Right. Fuck your intel. You're watching all this shit from the drone. I'm on the ground. I'm smelling the shit. I'm seeing the shit. I'm, I'm laying in the shit. I know exactly what's going on. I can tell you without a fucking doubt of who needs to take a dirt nap. <laughs> and you tell me no. And <coughs> instead, you want to drop a bomb. Well, it's money. So that's 18 cents versus $400,000. Yeah. It's money. Money Go talks. Go America. Yeah, money talks. Money talks, sir. Money talks. Um, question for you. What do you have coming next for people to pay attention to? Um, the biggest one thus far is I am creating, I am filming, producing, and directing a docuseries for Vet TV that is called Let's Talk About the War. Uh, Vet TV just wrapped up filming A Grunt's Life Season 2. Uh, which is going to be epic. It's going to start releasing in January on our website, our app. Um, but I wanted to create a documentary based around very real topics that were being discussed in A Grunt's Life. Um, we discussed coin counterinsurgency operations, how they failed. We discussed toxic leadership in the officer culture. Uh, working with Afghans, instilling a democracy, we're essentially asking all the questions that no one else wants to ask. Um, so it's it's been a heavy lift. Uh, it's been rewarding. It's been stressful. But that is coming out, and that is going to launch in mid-December um, on all of our Vet TV channels. Other than that, just doing me, still doing photo shoots. Um, and, yeah, there's a bunch more coming up. Jeez, man. You're on it, though. Where do people find you? Uh, on Instagram, it's at N underscore bets, B-E-T-T-S. And then within the bio, you can find my epic vlog with Nikki. Uh, it's where we document our various travels and photo shoots and things around the country, uh, as well as my photography portfolio. But I'm mainly only active on my personal one. Yeah, because you're a big deal. Mm. Yeah. Says you. 
Thanks. Yeah, well, you are. I mean, you're fantastic at what you do. And I'm glad that everybody got to find out a little bit more about you. But I think think what's going to happen is um, we're going to jump here and we're going to see everyone else next week. But uh, I think we're just going to record again one more time before I go. So we have another episode in the bank with you because I got a bunch of other stuff I want to talk to you about. So, yeah, we're going to go from there. Otherwise, we will all uh, see you all next week.